what of, of if you give four vaccines all at the same time and you've got all these different ingredients in it, what is the synergistic toxicity of those ingredients, those heavy metals and chemicals and all that stuff? They don't care. All, all They don't care. All that the vaccine researchers care about is if I inject you with a substance, does your body generate an antibody against that substance? And if it does, that's the definition of effective. The, The presence of the antibody does not keep you from getting sick. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, Paul is talking with Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, an osteopathic medical doctor and board certified in three medical specialities. She is widely regarded as the most knowledgeable and outspoken physician on the adverse impact vaccines can have on our health. Dr. Tenpenny is the author and contributing author of several books, including Saying No to Vaccines. Her articles have been published in over 14 languages, and in addition to her roles in vaccine education and activism, she sees patients at the Tenpenny Integrative Medical Center in Cleveland, Ohio. Dr. Tenpenny has a special offer for Paul's listeners for her Mastering Vaccine Info online bootcamp. So stay tuned until the end of the podcast for details. I'm very excited to interview Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. Our title today is Vaccines, Life, Disability, or Death? With a very large question mark. I met Dr. Tenpenny uh, a long time ago, probably around 2000, her and I were both taking functional medicine training from Dr. Bill Timmons. And uh, we also took a course together from Dr. Richard Hansen, MD, a medical dentist, and um, just started talking. And, and then uh, Dr. Tenpenny spent some time with me and I helped her out with some low back challenges. And I've been following her developments in her mastery and sharing on the issues of vaccines for as long as she's been putting them out. So, Dr. Tenpenny, what a what a pleasure to have you here to share with us today. Thank you, thank you, Paul. That's that's a great introduction. You know, I was thinking about that the other day, getting um, um, kind of in line to do this podcast with you today, and I was thinking, how long have I known Paul? I said. Bet it's been at least fifteen years. Yeah, and then I got to thinking about you know Dr. Timmons and and uh, all and how we met and and I remember those Christmas there was a couple of Christmas parties we went to, mm-hmm. so it's been a it's been a long time that we've known each other and that's really super nice. I don't have a a lot of people in my life that I can say I've been friends with for more than fifteen years, so it's been great to have you in my life and I look forward to covering this whole topic today with you with whatever you want to talk about. Well, I I appreciate all the work that you've done and we've both been working very hard for humanity. I, I can honestly say I, I know my goal has always been personally, my own legacy has been to leave the garden or the earth a little better place than I found it. And I know for sure that you've uh, done that. No matter when you should leave the planet, you've done your work, in my opinion. And I'm a guy that works hard. So that's coming from someone who can recognize honest commitment. So I'd love it if you could share an overview of your history as a physician and what led you to devoting so much of your life to vaccine awareness. Well, I grew up in a small town in north central Ohio, and my father was a chiropractor. Oh, neat. And in fact, in, in fact, my my father 
two uncles, no, three uncles, two cousins, and my dad's dad. So my paternal grandfather were all chiropractors. So I grew up in a chiropractic family. I was not vaccinated as a kid. Neither were any of my cousins or now that when we became adults, none of their kids. And so vaccination was never really an issue at all that, that I even thought about. I mean, I had all the age-appropriate infections, um, measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox. I had pertussis, I think, twice when I was in uh, grade school and then maybe in middle school. <clears throat> so the whole idea of vaccination was never on my radar screen, like ever. And then I went to medical school to become an osteopathic physician because a DO is like being an MD plus a chiropractor. And I, of course, wanted to have that skill set into in my toolbox. And so I went to osteopathic medical school. And after I graduated, I went into emergency medicine. And I was the director of an emergency department for 12 years. And even then, I would... I would not do a lot of vaccines. Like the kids would come in and they'd be sick and the nurses would say, oh, they're behind on their vaccines. Should we catch them up? And I would say, no, they're sick. Don't bother with that. You know, they can, if they're going to get vaccinated, they can do that after they're healthy. But I did give out tetanus shots like they were some special kind of candy. And yeah. and uh, a little was good and more was better. And it was certainly better to have an extra tetanus shot than to contract tetanus because I didn't understand that hyperimmunization using a tetanus vaccine can have a, a lot of long-term side effects. But we can circle back to that later. Sure. And so anyways, after I, so then I moved to Cleveland, uh, which is where I am now in Cleveland, Ohio, in 1996. And I started a practice to do integrative and functional medicine. And I made the transition because in 1996, or it was actually 1994, my business partner and good friend in my emergency medicine business died of metastatic kidney cancer when, when he was only 32. Mm. And when Dave passed away, the, the excitement and the interest in being um, in the emergency department just wasn't the same and it wasn't fun anymore. And, and in 1992 is when the Eisenberg study came out that showed that there were uh, people were spending more than a billion dollars per year out of pocket on alternative types of things like acupuncture and vitamins and massage. And, and that was back when a billion dollars really had some value back in 1992. Yeah. <laughs> and I saw that that was kind of the direction that I thought that the future of medicine was going. So when Dave died in 94, I moved to Cleveland in 96 to start my integrated practice. And then in September of 2000, I received a flyer in the mail. It was just a kind of a eight and a half by 11 trifold little cheapo flyer from the National Vaccine Information Center in Washington, D.C. that they were having an annual, they were having a conference. And it seemed as though every time I tried to throw that flyer away, it just made its way back to my kitchen counter. It just wouldn't seem to end up in the in the wastebasket. So I thought, there must be somebody really important I'm supposed to meet there. Well, little did I know that when I went to the meeting, it wasn't about somebody. It was about something. There were about 700 people from all over the world in attendance in that meeting. And I sat through four days of intensely listening to parents, medical doctors, PhDs, researchers, lawyers, government officials, all sorts of things. And, and I walked away from that conference going, how in the world did I miss this piece of my education? Mm. So when I got back home, I remember distinctly sitting on the couch going, what am I going to do with this? Where, where should I start? I should probably look into this a little bit. And I thought, well, you know, I guess I'll go look at the CDC papers because the CDC is supposed to be the experts on vaccines. Let's start there. So I started by reading the 1998 version of the general recommendations of vaccination. The CDC puts out an updated version of that every two or three years. And this was September of 2000. So I was reading the 1998 version. 
And when I got to the end of it, I said, how in the world can an entire industry be built on this? This is horrible. It's got no substance. It's horribly written. It's just like a bunch of miscellaneous thoughts. And then I began noticing that the CDC, every time that they uh, publish a paper, all of their references are CDC documents. It'd be like Paul Check writing a book and every reference is Paul Check. Right, yeah. And so so I thought, well, maybe I ought to read a little bit more because this just can't be right. And then when I, from there, starting that and uh, reading that first paper, I've now committed almost, well, about 18 and a half years and well over 30,000 hours of my life to researching and investigating each one of the 16 vaccines that are now in the childhood schedule. There are actually 65 vaccines that are approved for use here in the United States and another maybe 40 or 50 that are approved to use worldwide. And every time I read further and I went further into the rabbit hole, because I kept thinking at the beginning of this, Paul, I kept thinking sooner or later, I would read something that made sense. I would read something that would that would pop out and go, oh, okay, this is why vaccines are good. This is why all these children need to be invest- injected with all of these things. And the further down the rabbit hole I went, the more it became eye-opening that no vaccine is necessary. Every single vaccine can cause harm. And it doesn't matter if you get the injection when you're when you're one hour old, like when they give you vitamin K or hepatitis B, or if you're 80 years old or anywhere in the middle of that, any vaccine can cause serious lifetime health consequences. It can even cause death. And so vaccines don't respect age. They don't respect gender. They are all just foreign matter being injected into a clean human body under the ruse of calling it health. Yeah, well, that's that begins our journey, I'll tell you, because uh, this is one of the most highly charged topics in the world. And I won't jump ahead of our outline because I've kind of structured it so we can hit some of the key things one at a time. Um, one of the things that I wanted to start off with is, as you know, I study a lot like you do, and I have a very comprehensive library. And years and years ago, prob- probably around the time you and I were were um, taking courses together and, and things like that, one of the things I used to study a lot is the history of medicine because I was just constantly amazed, even when I focused more on orthopedic issues, how things were being done. And for example, how there was just hundreds and hundreds of studies showing that exercise did not improve back problems. And I'm, I was I just was baffled. And then I started looking into the research and it became very clear to me that they didn't understand anything about exercise. They didn't understand functional anatomy. They didn't understand how to design an exercise program. And the list was very long. And so I started looking into the history of, of medicine and reading very large books on it. And one of the books that I read talked about vaccinations and it uh, cited, and I don't remember the date, I think it was around the 1700s, but at that time, word had gotten out that in China, they were beginning a process of what would, would be considered now vaccination of taking uh, acupuncture needles and putting just a little bit of whatever the agent was called it the flu bug or, or virus or whatever on the needle. And they would then stick the needle into the largely children. And they found that it was had a protective effect. 
And so when the Queen of England heard, heard about this, she took her children and sailed all the way to China, had this procedure done. And she was so impressed by it, she met with the royal medical staff and shared what she had found out and, you know, what the procedure was and proposed to the British Medical Society at the time that they start doing this for the people of England. And she immediately got shut down. And their primary comment was, do you have any idea how much money we would lose doing that? And then that was basically it was shut down for a very long time. So with that sort of introduction, can you share an overview of the history of vaccines? And if they were once safe, when did things start getting crooked? Well, I, they, I yeah, I can definitely do that. And I will, I will start by saying they've never been safe. That process was called variolation uh. and they, and they would take it because, and, and it's like any vaccine that even we see today, Paul, I mean, you know, somebody can get a, 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 a flu shot and for all intents and purposes, they have no reaction to it. And the next person can get a flu shot and they can end up with a, a, a brachiitis in their arm and never use their arm again, or they can end up with Guillain-Barre syndrome and they can possibly die from it. So this whole process of taking a little scab and, and where they would net generally inject it would be in the creases of the fingers, like where your metacarpals come uh -huh. together. They would put a little bit there or they would actually, the other thing that the Chinese did is they would take scabs from uh, people that were recovering from smallpox and they would, they would make the scab, um, take the scabs and, and um, pound them into a powder and then they would blow them up people's noses uh, because yep. that's how they actually got the infection was through um, the virus being aerosolized. Right. And so, and they actually even had um, uh, like early day hospitals. They were like places where people would go and stay for a few days because some people would get sick with just a mild fever. Some people would contract raging smallpox encephalitis and die. So it's never been safe ever. And, and when it was, and, and when they were starting, so when they, it was in the late 1700s, that Lady Montague, who was one of the ambassador's wives from England, who had gone to Turkey and had seen this variolation process of where they would put the small the smallpox into the fingers, and many of the very wealthy people would do that because the smallpox virus has a predilection for the face and for the the sebum the sebum glands in the face, right. you know, like where you you know in your yes. face. And it had a, a predilection for that. And so the original early smallpox variolation procedure for the wealthy was done for cosmetic reasons oh. <laughs> because the, it was the, it was because smallpox and typhoid and cholera were considered um, people, filth diseases, F-I-L-T-H, filth diseases, and were seen amongst the very poor. And you saw, and so the epidemics of smallpox that you would see was because there was no hygiene, no clean water, no refrigeration. So people would eat, you know, horrible maggot filled meat and terrible old vegetables. If you were really poor, there was no nutrition. It was in the Northern climates, particularly in Northern England, where all of this was happening. And so that you saw these epidemics and outbreaks, large outbreaks in the poorest of poor. So if a very wealthy person contracted smallpox, it was presumed that they were cavorting with the poor. Uh. And so the reason that they wanted to give them a smallpox vaccination, assuming that it was going to do something 
was to keep them from contracting the smallpox so they wouldn't end up with these pockmarks on their faces and not be accused of cavorting with the poor. So smallpox vaccination at its very beginning in the of this variolation process in the 1700s was done for cosmetic reasons. And then when it rolled forward and Jenner decided that he thought that if he made an assumption that if dairy maids were milking cows and got exposed to and got exposed to um, the smallpox or the cowpox virus, that the um, that somehow by being exposed to that virus, it would keep them from contracting smallpox. So it was all based on assumptions. It was all based on lies because we we now know from historical documents that dairy maids who were exposed to this cowpox virus did c- contract smallpox. They also know that the only types of cows during that age that contracted cowpox were very sick unhealthy and dirty cows that had very horrible sanitation conditions, had a really bad farmer. And so when Jenner uh, actually took the smallpox and and, and uh, he made slashes along the belly of the cow and took uh, smallpox scabs from a person that was recovering from smallpox, ground them into a powder and infected the belly of the cow. And when it started to pustulize, then he would inject it into the arm of a mother. And so the mother they would take, and that was back before the days of Semmelweis, back before they had sterile instruments, and they would take a knife and they would make what would look like a tic-tac-toe board. They would put slashes on the mother's arm. They would scrape that pus from the bottom of the cow's belly or from the bottom of a horse's foot, slather it on the side of the mother's arm. And when it became very pustular and weepy, then they would scrape that off of the mother's arm and stab it into the arm of a baby. And that was called arm-to-arm vaccination during that time. And Jenner wrote papers and and kind of uh, just like we do today with the vaccine research, we sort of lie and stretch our data and said that he had all of these people who had recovered from smallpox um, who had not not contracted smallpox who had been vaccinated. And if you go back and look in those early documents back in the early, in the late 18, um, in the late 1700s up through about 1840, 1850, and you can find a lot of those old documents if you go to archive.org and they have all of them digital, they have a lot of them digitalized there that were, that were created during that time. Jenner had a lot of blowback from medical doctors, a lot of blowback of, of doctors who were saying, this is crazy. You're taking pus material and injecting it into babies. What's wrong with you? And we have, you know, we tried it in our practice and everybody that we vaccinated, um, they actually contracted smallpox from the vaccine and, and it ended up spreading it all over the community. So he had a lot of blowback. Who, who was, but there were sorry, lot- I don't mean to interrupt you. Who, who was Jenner? That's the part I think me and people might be missing. Well, Jenner was just a family practice guy who had bought his uh, degree because back in the day you could become a physician by, I think there was 19 different methods at the time that you could become a physician. You could buy the degree, you could, you could inherit it, you could just declare yourself to be a physician, you could do an apprentice, um, you, you could spend time with a, with a pharmacist uh, and, and then call yourself a doctor. And so Jenner just to kind of, for 42 Great British Pounds, he had gone to college and then had declared himself to be a physician. And so he was just doing this by observation. So he was the inventor inventor of and, and given credit as being the inventor of the modern day smallpox vaccine. Well, we've just found rot in the taproot of the whole concept. 
Well, let me finish a little bit of what I'm saying here because it gets even more. Oh, I want you to keep going. I'm excited. <laughs> so Jenner had friends who were actually physicians who were on parliament. And somewhat to the physicians, you know, giving them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, you know, there was a lot of smallpox around and there was really basically nothing that in 18, in 1801 that they could actually do for their patients that they felt had any public health thing at all, because that was before Simmelweiss. That was Simmelweiss was the physician who said, who actually taught who was an an OB-GYN doctor who actually showed, did a scientific experiment of, of, of midwives who were giving birth to babies versus physicians who were giving birth to babies. And the midwives would wash their hands before they would deliver the baby. And the, and the mother and the baby would be fine. The doctors would ride to the hospital on their horse and buggies, smack the horses on the back and go in and deliver the babies. And the mother would have all these, they call them purpural infections. And so many women died in childbirth because of infections, because of doctors, dirty hands. And when Semmelweis said, we've shown that the midwives over here have no infection rate, and you guys have all this infection rate. He was disparaged. His medical degree was taken away from him. He was literally beaten to death in a public prison for daring to question physicians and telling them to wash their hands. Well, that was in the fifteen in the in the mid in the mid eighteen hundreds. The smallpox vaccine came into wide use around eighteen oh one. So that was fifty years later. So there was no cleanliness, no anything. There was nothing that they could do. The physicians that were in Parliament suddenly said, "Well, this is a way that we can make a lot of money." And so they took the variolation process away from the midwives and away from the, the pharmacists and said that this could only be done by variolators or vaccinators that would go door to door in communities and administer these toxic uh, slathering stuff into babies. And they gave Jenner 10,000 great British pounds to do more investigations, which if you, if you went, if you find those little calculators, you find out that that's well over a million dollars in today's dollars. Wow. So from the very beginning, this filthy, this filthy procedure that had no basis in science whatsoever, it not even observational science could, could support it, was tied with physicians who wanted to make money and was embedded into the government that gave Jenner money. He, they gave him 10,000 Great British Pounds, and then five years later, they gave him 20,000 more Great British Pounds to develop all, they, they, this entire industry. These cattle were put in place uh, to, to be able to uh, infect their bellies and scrape the, that off the bottom of their bellies. But they found that it was really difficult to get the smallpox virus to grow on the belly of a healthy cow because the healthy cows just kicked it out. So they could only grow it on very deadly sick cows or they would strap the cows down and, and make them very sick so that they could grow the smallpox virus. So the industry was was based off of no science, was based off of filthy transmission was embedded in the medical uh, industry because of wanting to make money. The government was involved with it in terms of poisoning the poor people because initially the poor people were targeted for vaccination, not the rich people. And this is how this whole industry began. And then in, 19, in 1853 in, in England was the very first mandatory vaccination laws that they, they call them the compulsory vaccination laws. And UK, in the UK passed a series of three of them. The first one was in 1853, then in 1867, then in 1873. And after the first one was passed, 
that was the same time as the birth of the anti-vaccine movement, because there was this great outcry of people saying they did not think the government should mandatorily be forcing them to get this filthy stuff injected into them and their children. And the people who started the first um, anti-vaccine movement, they called it Our Baby's Battle. And it was started by parents whose children had died at the hands of the vaccinators, either because mostly because of gangrene, because they're, they would develop gangrene. And again, that was before the day of antibiotics. So from the very inception, it was never safe. It was always filthy. It was always injecting foreign matter into a clean human body. It's the same thing we do today. We've got the doctors bought and sold into it so they can make money. We, we in the U.S., the U.S. Uh, government is the largest single purchaser of vaccines from the pharmaceutical industry of any purchaser in the world. Um, we put tens of millions of dollars into this vaccine industry. In fact, we spend $4 billion a year on vaccines for Medicare. So from the very beginning, from its very inception, in my opinion, vaccines have been a completely a 200-year mistake, should have never happened to begin with, and it's long overdue that the entire industry go away. Well, we're going to get into some of these issues around all that. I mean, I was just letting you share so I didn't interrupt you and things like that. One thing that I want to share, though, is you may not know, I was a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division, and... As a paratrooper, you have to have 23 vaccinations because within 24 hours, you, you can be anywhere in the world at war. So once a hot spot breaks out and we get the green light, we have to be there within 24 hours. So when I uh, entered the 82nd Airborne Division, all of us had to go get these vaccinations and they put them into us with some kind of an air gun where they just hit you on the shoulder and you go down an assembly line and you start and one guy hits you, then you get the next one. Now, so I got these 23 vaccinations. And after that, your arm swells up like almost the size of a volleyball. It's like someone hit you with a sledgehammer. A lot of guys feel really lousy. Sometimes for days after that, you can't move your arm for about three or four days. It hurts so bad. Deep, like a very deep bruising. The problem is if they lose your shot record, then you have to have all your vaccinations again. And it just so happened oh they lost my shot record two times. Oh, my goodness. So I've had 23 of those vaccinations three times. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because uh, not long after you and I were taking courses together, I realized that I had something going on with me that I couldn't figure out with issue with you know with holistic approaches and that's when i uh consulted with dr timmons and him and i uh worked for each other i worked on his body and he took my functional medicine tests and and basically guided me but what what one of the things that came out was i had extremely high levels of mercury aluminum and nickel in my body and so uh, at the time, he he didn't he and I didn't talk about that. It didn't dawn on me to mention that to him. Do you think that those could have come from all those vaccinations? Well, I'm not so sure that those. What did you you said? Nickel. What were the three the three metals? Mer nickel? Mercury, nickel, and aluminum were the ones I remember. There was a couple other one. Uh, there was some copper. 
one or two other ones. This is, you know, this is many years ago now, but. Um, um, aluminum and mercury for sure. Nickel, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, nickel's not in any of the vaccines. Um, you know, sometimes the metals can, you know, they, they can attract each other and they can also like cut down on your detoxification pathways in terms of excreting them. Yeah. But to get those all of those shots twice, Paul, that was horrible. I mean, it's it's one thing that the, you know, I, it's interesting you should bring this up because I was just reading the, the, the military recommendations this morning because I got a question from somebody that their son was going to go to, um, had just been accepted into the Air Force Academy, has never been vaccinated, never been sick an entire day of his life and wanting to know if there was any exemptions in the military. And as a matter of fact, there are, they are very limited and the Air Force is the least uh, favorable to exemptions of all of them, which is really so stupid because, <laughs> you know, you're way up in the air, right? right? Yep. I mean, when are you going to get exposed to like measles, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, but you have to declare these exemptions before you actually become an enrolled member. But inside of those exemptions, they are now allowing um, in, in limited circumstances, and it kind of depends on the branch of the military that you're talking about and probably depends on the guy, who your chief is, but they are allowing um, uh, vaccine titers, so that you can get a blood test. And if you have an adequate antibody level for any of those vaccines that they want to give you, particularly the reboosters of the childhood vaccines, um, you, they, they, will, they will grant that and not, you won't have to get another shot. And I was also reading an article this morning on a different thing. I, I was right. I'm in the middle of writing an article today about tetanus. And they now, and since at least since 2010, and I've seen this study repeated in 2014, I believe that if you've had one tetanus shot in your entire life, that that gives you enough antibodies to last your entire life. If you believe the antibodies do anything at all, which is another discussion, mm-hmm. but all of these routine tetanus shots and every 10 years and every single time you get a little cut scrape or whatever, everybody runs to get a tetanus shot because everybody thinks that tetanus is hundred percent fatal, which it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so all of those different things. So I think the upshot of this, this comment for your listeners to know is that there is, there are blood tests available. They're called a titer test, T-I-T-E-R, titer test for just about all of the vaccines. Um, they don't have one for pertussis and it's hard to get one for, for uh, pneumonia shots or Prevnar, but for measles, mumps, rubella, chicken pox, um, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, they, all of those, you can order a titer test to see what your antibody level is. And that, and if your antibody level, if you've had vaccines before, or you've been exposed to the infection before, like some people have been exposed to chickenpox, but didn't end up with the chickenpox rash, but they have an adequate antibody level that is considered to be a proof. They call it a proof of immunity exemption so that you don't have to get any more vaccines. And you being in California, and now with the egregious stuff in California, I think that's really important for a lot of your listeners to know. Yeah, uh, that's very important. Where Angie found a a doctor that we're going to see for vaccine exemption, I don't know his name, uh, but he does a fairly comprehensive review of uh, your health, your family health, any kind of issues, and and then... uh, He'll give you the exemption if you meet whatever his criteria are. Um, uh, you know, when I was in the 82nd Airborne Division, there the 82nd Airborne Division is an elite fighting unit, and there was 
zero tolerance. You had those vaccinations or you just could, or you would just be kicked out of the 82nd Airborne Division or, or worse. But uh, I had them three times. They give you the initial vaccinations and they lost my shot record two times. So I actually had 23 injections three times in two years. Um, my next question, though, is are the medical drug and vaccine manufacturers essentially part of the same organization or are they different organizations? Say that again. I was, I'm a little unclear. Are, the, are the medical drug manufacturing corporations and vex, vaccine manufacturing corporations part of one organization or are they separate organizations? No, the, the vaccine, vaccine manufacturing is a division inside of a company. So like Merck, you know, that makes cancer drugs and makes, you know, all, all types of other types of drugs. They each have their own division. Well, that, and then inside of Merck, there is a division that makes vaccines or that it's an extension of, of Merck. Same thing with like Santa Fe Pasteur and Avenis and, and things like that. The, the vaccine is, is a division of that particular company. Right. Um, I wanted to share a little bit about my experience in the hospital with Angie when Mana was born to set up our next discussion point. One of the things that I found very challenging is, is we refused the vaccines and the nurses would just come and pester us constantly to get these vaccines for mana and, and even use scare tactics and, and try to make you feel like you were some kind of a, uh, less than healthy parent or, you know, just very uncomfortable. And they would even come at two o'clock and three o'clock in the morning and wake us up from a dead sleep and say, are you sure you don't want to sign this? And dot, dot, dot. And, and one of the things I kept asking them is what are the side effects? None of them could give me any answers. Then they were giving us huge amounts of pressure for vitamin K. And my first reaction was, look, is that natural or synthetic? They said it's synthetic. I said, well, what are the side effects? They didn't know the side effects. So I said, go get me the box and bring it to me. Well, the nurse brought me the box. I opened it up. The first side effect listed was liver failure. And I went down the list and I said, look, human beings have been on this planet for potentially millions of years. And all of a sudden you're telling me that for my child to make it in a healthy home with good food, that he has to have a synthetic vitamin injected into him. So his blood's going to coagulate. I said, not a chance. And, and I'm, I really begin to be deeply concerned that many of these people are highly programmed and they're not asking critical questions and it, I found it very, very frustrating. And, and if that wasn't the end of it, uh, I mean, that wasn't the end of it. So then what happened is when we, you know, to prep, to, to kind of throw another twist into it, Penny was bringing us our own food. I brought orgone generator pyramids in there, electromagnetic protection devices. So a number of the nurses that would come in would notice these things and notice that we had our own food. And in the time that we had these conversations and, and even when we were going for the visits to doctors for Mana's checkups, we had three nurses confide in us privately that they get people in the hospital all the time with the exact uh, illnesses that they've been vaccinated for. And they quietly said, stick to your guns. 
But what was really upsetting is that right when we were about to check out, all of a sudden there was a knock on the on the hospital door, our, our room, and there was two people dressed up in suits with the head nurse and they demanded that I leave the room. Well, it turned out to be social services and the nurses had reported me for child and spousal abuse because I wouldn't let Mana get these vaccinations. And they were interviewing Angie to see if I was an abusive husband and to see whether we were fit to be parents. And they were considering taking our child away based on some kind of state laws. So do you feel that that we have a problem here that the, the kind of the whole issue of just believing what any doctor says or what so-called science is saying, whatever that's become these days is a throwback from our religious program or our history with priests and, and religious programming. And how do you account for the fact that it takes four years of nursing school and four years of medical school yet I've got nurses and doctors trying to in, give us injections and they don't even know the side effects of the things that they're trying to inject us with yet they're putting pressure on us like we're some kind of half parent or being abusive to our child when clearly there's a mountain of evidence supporting exactly the type of information that you're giving and you're you're a big source of the very good evidence and it really frustrates me because the Hippocratic Oath is first do no harm, but it seems that that has completely gone to the wind. So, um, you know, our medical staff, the modern prostitutes with scientists this day, how come there's not any critical thinking and why do you think this is all happening? Oh my gosh, Paul! You know we're going to be on here till midnight tonight. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> we got to make up for 15, 20, 15, 18 years of not hanging out together, and this is important. These are these are things that I want to know and that people want to know, and this is a uh, this is very dangerous. I mean, people believe whatever doctors say, like it's gospel. Which that which which is the place where they should stop, right? Yeah, there. that's. I mean, it's it's uh, and particularly when it comes to vaccines, because you'll. You'll talk. To, you ask any physician, even the younger ones that are just coming out of medical school now. But you ask, you know, people like me and older than me, and you know, anyone along the way. How much were you taught about vaccines in medical school? I don't ever even remember it being discussed. Now, I graduated from medical school in 1985, and there were only three vaccines, and so, and it wasn't until about that time, around the mid-1980s, when they started actually enforcing uh, the vaccines for school. So we never talked about it at all. And now all that these kids learn is here's the schedule, learn how to give it on time. That's all. They don't learn to recognize side effects. They have no idea what the ingredients are in them. They know that it, they don't know that there has never ever been a synergistic toxicity uh, study done to see what of, of if you give four vaccines all at the same time and you've got all these different ingredients in it. What is the synergistic toxicity of those ingredients? Those heavy metals and chemicals and all that stuff. They don't care. All, all they don't care. All that the vaccine researchers care about is if I inject you with a substance, does your body generate an antibody against that substance? And if it does, that's the definition of effective. The, the presence of the antibody does not 
keep you from getting sick. And that bears repeating that when you, this, so when people hear safe and effective, safe and effective, you know, they hear effective, we are trained as consumers to think that, if, that an effective vaccine means that if I get a vaccine, if I get vaccinated, that will protect me from getting sick. But it doesn't because you can have high antibody levels and still contract that infection. So all effective means is when foreign matter is injected into the body and it generates an antibody, it did what it was intended to do. It generated an antibody. And that's how they define a vaccine being effective. Now, scientists don't know that. Doctors don't know that. People don't, unless you you dig apart the research like I have to figure it out because Effective is not a synonym for protection. Repeat, people that are listening to this, embed this in your brain. Effective is not a synonym for protection because you can get the vaccine and still get the illness. And back to your question about everything in modern medicine is now algorithm-driven care. You know, you have, you know, it's, it's, you present with a symptom Doctor asks the follow-up question. If it's yes or no, yes or no, yes or no, you get deductive reasoning. You get down to okay. Here's your diagnosis and here's your pill in under eight minutes, and they're out the door and on to the next person who presents with a symptom, and uh, which comes to a diagnosis, and then they are presented with a pill. So they don't do any critical thinking. There are very few physicians who spend enough time with their patients like we do in our clinic. I mean, our, our office visits are anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour because we want to pull apart the patient's history enough to really figure out and look to figure out what caused them from getting sick and what can we do to repair that rather than just giving them a pill, which is just suppressive medicine, because we've been conditioned to believe, Paul, that symptom-free in the presence of a drug means we're healthy. Right. So the, my listening to you talk, a question came to my mind. So if, you've, if you're developing antibodies to whatever the infectious agent is, and you're still able to get infected, wouldn't that suggest that it's a, an issue of combined stressors in the body and that you don't have the resources to deal with whatever it is like someone may be going through a divorce or they have bad diet or they're not getting enough sleep or any number of combined factors because the nervous system summates stress, all stress. So is that what you think is going on? Well, yeah, because, you know, when people are, when, when, children, when you see a population of unvaccinated children, and, and I want to get back to this, this story that you were talking about when you guys were in the hospital, because I think it's really important. Please. But, but when you see a, an unvaccinated child, they're inquisitive, they're bright, they have normal body rhythms, meaning they go to bed on time, they are growing normally, they, they don't have snotty, runny noses, they're not sick. And, and so when you and that's one of the reasons why the CDC refuses to do a study comparing a population of, of fully vaccinated kids to a population of unvaccinated kids, because in research, you can't find what you're not looking for. And they don't want to know the answer to that. Because we not only we clinically and intuitively know that when these children's bodies are allowed to do what they're supposed to do in the presence of 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 going to bed on time, getting purified water, eating really good food, getting lots of love and running around playing exercise, because we know what love does to your white blood cells and your immune system. It really beefs up those those good energetic pathways. They're not sick. Right. They're just not. 
And so we, if suddenly we had millions of unvaccinated kids who simply weren't sick, then that completely breaks the pharmaceuticals model. And their model is, and their idea and their vision statement is to have every single human on the planet on a minimum of two daily pharmaceutical drugs for life beginning in childhood. Yes. Well, you can only do that. You can only do that when you are pummeling these little bitty kids, little bitty kids with all of these foreign proteins, all of these uh, carcinogenic chemicals and heavy metals. I mean, Paul, kids get by from birth till one year of age, they get 19 vaccines. Yes. By the time they start kindergarten, they get 33 vaccines. And a fully vaccinated teenager has 54 vaccines and nearly 12,000 micrograms of aluminum injected into their body that doesn't leave. Yeah, they. I think it's higher in California because uh, I remember Angie looking into it. It was 44 vaccines. I think they wanted to give mana by age three or some crazy ass thing. No, those are the real numbers. I've done the math multiple times and I have a full table that, that shows okay, all well, of it. Okay, maybe, well, maybe I just got confused because there was so much conversation going on about this, but it's either way, it's just too, it's, too, it's too much. much. And, you know, you, you made me want to share something with you. One, every single time we took Mana in for a checkup, the doctors always said, oh my God, this kid is so strong. He's so healthy. What are you doing? We don't see kids like this very often. So they notice right away Two, whenever we take him to the park, we can clearly see beyond a shadow of a doubt. And you know, I have a lot of knowledge and skill at assessing human function, human movement, human health. These kids are just sluggish. They're delayed. Their eyes often don't focus. They look like they're sleepwalking. We've seen kids a year and a year and a half older than Mana that can't even climb a ladder and he can just move right past them like they're standing still. And I've got Czech professionals all over the world who also don't vaccinate for the same concerns that we have, some of which I've referred to you. And they say the same things. They say their kids are just way more alive and vital than the children around them. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, my chiropractor, who works in my office a couple days a week, you know, he teaches, he he coaches soccer, <laughs> and his oldest, I believe, is I think his oldest is ten, and then he's got one that's I believe seven, and then I think his daughter's like three, somewhere in that age group. But he would say, Sherry, he said these kids are, he said you can just it, see how messed up they are, and his kids, none of his kids are vaccinated, and he said these kids cannot follow simple two-step commands. You can't say, run down the field, kick the ball, and then run to the bench. They can't sequ- they can't sequence that. And he said, you know, my kids are just average kids. They're not like geniuses by any step of the imagination. They're, they're good kids. They're smart, but they're just kind of like average kids. And he said, but they look like geniuses compared to these messed up kids who have all these vaccines that have messed up their brains, messed up their health. They, and I, 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 I told somebody, this is, a, you know, in our, after people go through our, our boot camp course, which we'll talk about later, but after they go through our boot camp course, um, the graduates then are invited to uh, join our Mastering Vaccine Info page two membership. And the membership is to continue the conversation. So if you imagine that you had a total immersion for eight weeks, you went to France and you did a total immersion in French, 
When you come home, unless you continue to practice the French, you're going to lose it. And so the page two membership is about continuing it. And I had them do one of the, one of the exercises was, so every week in page two, they get a little, they get like a seven minute video, which is a point to ponder, a discussion point, and then a little exercise. And one of the exercises was, was to print out several of the package inserts and look at the potential side effects. And what you are actually doing when you vaccinate your child with any vaccine, whether it's the flu shot, DPT, MMR, every single one of the vaccines that you're trying to inject foreign matter to avoid an infection, what the potential side effect is, is a long-term disease. And I make a really big distinction between we've got to stop calling measles and chickenpox diseases because they're not. They are infections and infections come and go in a week to 10 days and they leave behind a lifetime of immunity. A disease is something that comes and stays and frequently cannot be cured. So when you vaccinate to avoid an infection, what you potentially are doing is causing a disease. Right. Yes. Um, A couple of things come to my mind. Um, I lost my my thing because I didn't want to interrupt you. So we'll just go to the next one. Um, What vaccines are commonly injected into pregnant women or uh, yeah, into pregnant women and what are the risks? (laughs) Well, the, the first one that they brightly decided to do was the flu shot, which is totally worthless and still multi-dose flu shots still have 25 micrograms of mercury per dose. So they give a flu shot at 28 weeks, and now they also give a pertussis vaccine, which does absolutely nothing, nothing um, for either the mother or for the infant. And they give that also at 28 weeks. And then if the mother happens to be Rh negative, they also give a Rogam shot generally at 28 weeks. And it's not uncommon that they get all three of them in the same day. And so the potential side effects are any sort of the side effects, same side effects uh, that you could get um, from any of the vaccines when you're not pregnant as when you are pregnant. And, and it's just a sh- astonishing to me, Paul. In fact, inside of our vaccine university, the course uh, content that we are, we are building and will be released here in another week or two, um, all these different courses that I built, there's a whole uh, course on, uh, it's called the pregnancy course. And it talks about flu shots, pneumonia shots, I'm sorry, flu shots, pertussis shots, tetanus shots given to mothers while they're pregnant. There's a section on Rogam, um, one on vitamin K, because uh, that's one of the things I want to circle back to, because you talked about vitamin K when you were in the hospital uh, with with your baby. Yes. But all of these things, I mean, the, you know, I, someday I'm going to get around to writing a book. I have an entire outline of a book um, that I want to write in the title of the working title of the book is what we do to newborns and how does anybody make it onto this planet alive? That's, it's, yes, I mean, but, that's why I titled I mean, the show what I did today. I mean, between the... Uh, the shots that were given mothers, the amniocentesis, all the ultrasounds, all the different things that we do to these babies. And as soon as they're born, we pop them with this synthetic vitamin K that is that one of the, there's five different brands of vitamin K. One of them has a hundred micrograms of aluminum in them. It's a synthetic vitamin K shot that they do not need that we could talk about a little bit more in detail. Then a couple of hours later, they get a hepatitis B vaccine with another hundred micrograms of aluminum. And then if the moms, you know, it's the first birth, you know, that I really believe 
believe that in the first letdown of mother's milk, they should really, in the first couple of hours of pumping, they should take all of that, that milk and throw it away because it's loaded with all the metals and chemicals that they have accumulated in their own bodies, in the fat of their body, which breast tissue is mostly fat, over their lifetime. And I think that the immediate, the very first download, you know, the first dose should just be thrown away. That, the baby can wait a little bit before they can start eating. That, that's a, that's a very important tip. So I, I remembered what I wanted to share uh, previously. One is a comment. I don't think we have a government anymore. I think we have a corporate headquarters. I, I really think we have to put a dash between the word govern and meant and put a question mark behind it. It's it's a you know, it's a very, very dangerous situation that we're in in many countries worldwide. My next comment is my research on mercury, because I had mercury poisoning, was very clear to me. The amount of mercury that's safe in your body is zero. And one of the things in the research on mercury in the human body is it causes all sorts of disruptions in the nervous system. It causes entanglements in neural tissue. I know in me it caused tremendous cognitive disorder. I mean, I, I couldn't even remember what I was talking about half the time. I would be taking um, – record uh, measuring people's range of motion or various tests I was doing. And from the time I could get to measuring the joint to writing it down, I would forget what the hell the measurement was. And when I got the mercury cleaned out of me, it was like someone just lifted a massive fog off of my head. The other issue that I wanted to bring up is that when we're talking about, you know, a lot of the hype and a lot of the people that are so pro-vaccine base it on historical events or this disease or that virus and it wiped out, you know, tuberculosis wiped out this many people, whatever. So you have to protect against that. But my understanding of the biology of these things is that new, new infectious agents are produced in the environment all the time as, as the environment changes, as toxicity changes. Um, so how do we, how is it possible to even produce vaccines for things that that we don't even know when they're going to come. I mean, uh, what's, what's your take on, on a, are these things spontaneously generated as a result of environment or can we predict them? Or, uh, is, is this idea that you, that the things of the past are perpetually an issue in the future or do they change as the environment changes? Well, they, you know, that gets down to the discussion between, um, Pasteur and Bouchamp, right? You know, Pasteur was all about the germ theory and it's all about the germs. And we got all these germs waiting around, just waiting to pounce on us and cause us to be sick. Ah! Yes, right? yes, I studied. Yeah, that, 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 that. And interestingly, I mean, it's funny you mentioned him because when I looked into pasteurization, it turned out that the cows that were getting sick were the ones that were feeding the leftover, uh, uh, the the byproducts of making alcohol and that all the all this issue about pasteurization from pus and milk was coming from sick cows just like you were talking about with the vaccinations and we both know that pasteur said on his deathbed that it is the environment it's not the germs that are the problem well he sort of the he he sort of acquiesced to bouchamp on his deathbed you know is that 
because he knew that it was really about the environment. I mean, you know, in the, in that one example that Bouchamp did of all the different things that he did to try to say it's the terrain, it's about your body, it's about the health of the soil, whether you're talking about the soil in your front yard or you're talking about the soil as your own microbiome and your own body. It's about the condition, the acidification, the correct amount of pH, the correct amount of minerals, about all those different things within your own normal soil. And one of those um, little little um, tests that, or um, one of the experiments that he did that was so simple is that he took a peach and he had like a normal intact peach that just sat on the counter and the other peach he bruised. He dropped it on the floor or he hit it or something that had, you know, like a soft spot on the side of the, of the peach. He bruised it and he sat both of them on, on like the countertop. And the one that was intact and had a fully intact skin over time, it just started to shrink up and, and it became, you know, dehydrated and just was a, you know, that kind of a peach. But the other one where it had that bruise on it is where the bacteria and the pathogens were able to invade through the skin of the peach right. and be able to get into the pulp and to start to break it down. Well, it's the, to me, that is such the perfect visual of explaining the difference between the germ theory and, oh, my God, it's a germ and we might have a pandemic. Ah! Yes. <laughs> it's like, you know, or if we are just healthy and we are we are intact beings, we have all the appropriate things in place. It's a great big. So what? You know, it's a great big. So what? Yes. It, it, you're making me remember some things. And there's one thing I, I want to ask you, but. Just it seems that medicine's very, very slow to catch on to things. I'll give you an example. There was a medical doctor that used to do some work for Dr. Timmons. Uh, Tom was his first name. I don't remember his last name, but he had two medical degrees, a degree in a PhD in physiology and MD, and he was also a chiropractor. And I remember one time he came to visit my office and he was all excited about the new research on this second brain, the abdominal brain. And, and I said to him, that's not new. And he says, oh, yes, it is. And he started citing research. I said, let me show you something. I walked him into my library where I have my rare book collection and pulled out a book titled The Abdominal and Pelvic Brain, written by Byron Robinson, MD, first edition 1899, which I have, and second edition 1907, which is even to this day, probably the most comprehensive document ever on the abdominal brain. And he was just mind boggled that that was out there. And I was just watching a documentary on the gut microbiome and physicians were admitting in there that 10 and 15 years ago, when people were saying these kinds of things, they were laughed out. But now that now that they have research by white jackets, they're saying they were wrong. And um, one of the questions that this leads me to is, now that there's this awareness of the importance of the microbiome, which holistic people like myself and yourself have been known about for a long time, what are the risks of disrupting the microbiome, both in mothers and children and people in general, with all these vaccinations being injected? Well, that's exactly right, because those here, here's one that, that people don't really talk about much in terms of the microbiome, but the Gardasil vaccine and the hepatitis B vaccine, those viruses are, um, are grown in or, or propagated in yeast. Uh-huh. And the yeast that they use is Sarcomyces boulardii, which is a really super important good yeast in our gut. 
So when you inject those things into the arm and the body develops an antibody to the yeast that's being injected into your arm, because who, your yeast, that's an abnormal place for yeast to be injected, right? Yes. And we, it is in your arm. And so the, the immune system comes along and says, well, we need to get rid of this. This doesn't belong here. Let's create an antibody to glob onto it and to um, neutralize it and to make it go away. Well, once we've created this antibody and that glob in the muscle in your arm or your leg is gone, the antibody persists. Well, so now go start looking. Is there any other sarcomyces around here anywhere? Oh, my gosh, look, it's in the gut. Yep. And we know that developing those antibodies, those are blood tests that you can get to differentiate between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And the studies that were done with Gardasil that showed um, that that uh, some of the un, some of the unpublished data that shows that um, the incidence of of GI and bowel uh, disorders prior to when these girls and boys got injected with the Gardasil vaccine, I think the number was around the the, the number in the population, and I think it was out of twenty one thousand of. of uh, participants. I think the number was about 780. But but 18 months later, the number of those same participants that had gotten the injection, the number that now had inflammatory bowel disease was like 7,800. Oh so my, it, was uh... almost, it was almost a third. And so we are injecting foreign matter that is causing disease. And I think that that's one of the biggest take-home messages. I mean, if everybody, if we just said, okay, Paul, it's been great, ended right here, and your listeners stopped right here, the take-home message is when you inject something, foreign matter, into a human body of any age, you are in, in, in in a vain attempt, in a fake attempt to avoid an infection, the upshot of that is developing long-term consequential disease. Well, if you also if you create antibodies against friendly organisms in the gut, as you've just described, well, you've just almost guaranteed you're going to have a very serious case of leaky gut syndrome, which is going to be leading to a tremendous amount of food intolerances, which we are now flooded with. And I know you were studying food intolerance way back when, and I was too, 20 years ago, and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. So it it helps shed light on the fact that a lot of the chronic inflammatory issues of the gut, which are linked to arthritis and many other things, can also be connected to vaccines. Of course. Of course. And the other thing that we're seeing, sadly enough, and I, and I predicted this at least 10 years ago now, I, I said, you know, when we have a fully vaccinated, because, well, they started giving the hepatitis B vaccine at birth in 1991. So if you were born in 1991, you're now 27, 28 years of age, you're of childbearing age. If you were born in 2000, so in 91, they added hepatitis B and Hib, and then they added um, uh, chickenpox in 95. They added Prevnar in 2000. About that same time, they added hepatitis A. And so if you were born in 2000, you're now 18 years of age, you're graduating from high school, you are amongst the the, the generation that has the full load, like the mostly the full load of vaccines. And what's happening now, and we're seeing it in our own practice, is that when you see a fully vaccinated mom and a fully vaccinated dad, and they get together and they have a baby, 
and the baby is born at home, you know, home birth, no goop in the eyes, no vaccines, no circumcision. Mom and dad were both eating organic and all this other stuff before the baby was born. But we're seeing sick babies now, Paul. Yes. We're, they're just not healthy. And and and, and the parents are like, I don't understand. We did everything right. Look, we, we're, we're the crunchy generation. We did, you know, we have no chemicals in our home. We, you know, only eat organic, blah, 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 blah. So what we've started doing in our practice, taking one step back, one generation back and saying, okay, mom, bring us your vaccination record. And dad, bring us your vaccination record. So now what we're seeing is the corruption of the genetics yes. by all of these vaccines. So now we uh, we are seeing these babies that are in, being born and they're coming to our practice because we don't vaccinate. We have a pediatrician, Dr. Janet Levitin, that's in our practice that has never d- done vaccines in her practice ever because she saw two children die during her residency uh, of SIDS right after they'd had vaccines. And she never, never vaccinated in her practice. And Jack, Janet's been in practice now for 35 years. And so par- more and more parents are coming to see us because they don't want to vaccinate. And, but they're, but they're concerned because we're seeing these kids that they're just not well. They're just, they're not like sick, 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 but they're not well. No, they're just and off. So they're, they're, they're just off. They're delayed. And, and I've been, like I said, they look like they're sleepwalking. But these are unvaccinated kids. These are babies that had no vaccines, no yeah. antibiotics, no yeah. anything. Parents were pe- healthy during the entire pregnancy. Yeah. So I'm so, uh, I'm really fearful that we are now re- reaching the point of the last generation of healthy kids. Well, you know, I- I'm going to jump forward because this is uh, very timely for one of my concerns. It might have been on your website, Vaxter, V-A-X-X-T-E-R.com, which I highly, highly recommend. I read it every time it comes out. I'm scanning through and reading the key pieces of information there, and I share it with a lot of people. Thank you. Um, somewhere I saw a video clip of Bill Gates giving a lecture about the importance of vaccine. And in the same sentence, he mentioned that we have to reduce populations and implied that it had to do with the use of vaccines. I'm, I really need to hear your opinion. Do you feel that there's something going on that has something to do with reducing populations or targeting key, uh, ethnic groups with vaccines? I don't know that I, I have any particular proof about the targeting ethnic groups, but it's pretty obvious what they're doing with uh, the depopulation. I mean, we've got, we, we now, the, the U.S. just released our, uh, just released the data, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, that for the first time ever, we have a real, gen, uh, a genuine population decline here in the U.S. And it started in 2006. Imagine that. What happened in 2006? They released the Gardasil vaccine. Mm. And we know that polysorbate 80 can cause a premature um, uh, um, ovarian, it causes primary ovarian failure in girls. It can cause premature menopause. It can make the lining of the uterus um, not be able to have cycles anymore. They see it in, in um, they knew that ahead of time because they had that research in, in female mice. And then the combination of, of sodium borax, sodium borate, which is also called borax, the same kind of borax you could put in your wash machine, yeah, wash your clothes, right. sodium borate, aluminum, and polysorbate 80 causes, um, uh, it kills the sperm in little boys. 
It does not affect the Sertoli cells in the testicles. And the Sertoli cells are the ones that produce testosterone. And so, um, what, so little boys can go ahead and develop uh, into young men with changing their voice and getting body hair and things like that and not know that they have no sperm production until they get to be in their 20s or even their teens and they want to have babies. And we're having and a they, booming problem with um, infertility worldwide. That's exactly why. It's all the aluminum. They ate the 13,000 micrograms of injected aluminum in a fully vaccinated boy and girl because that aluminum can collect in the testicles. There was a study done by by Dr. Chris Exley. It was uh, in 2014 or 15. It was pretty recent. That they had 62 male volunteers that gave semen samples to be tested. And the higher the concentration of aluminum that they found in the semen, the, the lower the sperm count and the sperm that they did have was dead. It didn't wiggle. It was at all. And so they, they said that unequivocally aluminum that, that can gather in the testicles will, will decrease sperm production and decrease sperm motility. And if you don't have sperm and the sperm you do have doesn't move, then by definition, you're as a man infertile. And people need to know this about this is happening, particularly men. I would think, Paul, that if, that if fathers knew this was happening to their sons, they, we would have a million man march in Washington, DC about that. Well, we're going to have to have this soon. Um, because it's it's just dead clear to me, and I could cite a thousand reasons to believe this, that the government is not looking out for its people. It simply is not. We, Like I said, we don't have a government. We have a corporate headquarters, and its agendas are, are driven by profit uh, more than anything, it seems. And it's, it's a deep concern. And I want to share something with you that I think you'll find interesting. You know, I, as you can imagine, get athletes from all over the world reaching out to me to consult with me about a myriad of different problems. But in the last few years, I've had something that I never dreamed would ever happen in my lifetime. I've had 18 and 19-year-old young male athletes contacting me to ask how to get off of Viagra. And I'm like, what yeah. in the hell are you doing using Viagra? I said, when I was 18 years old, I could use my penis as a dinner bell. And here you are telling me you have to use Viagra to get an erection? We've got 18 and 19-year-old male athletes taking Viagra. That is serious stuff. That is very serious stuff. And it's, it, and it's, it's just, it's going to get, and it's only going to get worse. Yeah. Unless people start listening and they start to wake up. You know, Paul, the whole reason that I do this and why I've dedicated so much of my life to this, sometimes I just think, you know, if I'd have taken the 30,000 hours of my time and all this other stuff and I had done like built a business with it or I had done something else or I'd even gotten paid minimum wage, that would make been a really nice thing for my retirement plan, right? Yes, exactly. But instead, but instead that I, I really want to get ahead of the curve. And this is another thing I want your listeners to hear. And, and for, and I understand that a lot of your listeners to your podcast, I mean, they are, they are your coaches and then they've got their own clients so they can yes. take this and, and disseminate it out, you know, like laterally is that I tell young people, if you are seriously dating someone or you're engaged to someone now, or this is, you're thinking about getting married, put the vaccine question on the table now. Mm -hmm. Get yeah. know what your know what your boyfriend or your girlfriend really think about vaccinating, or even if you're a gay couple, really, and you're thinking that you want to have you know children in your household down the road. Yeah. I mean, you need to put that 
on the table now because um, I started talking about this on the radio quite a few years ago, and I can't tell you how many different people have contacted me. You know, months later after I'd been on the radio and said, you know, Doctor Tempany, I heard you say that, and and I thought about it, and I thought, you know what, I'm totally against vaccines. I ought to ask my fiance how he feels about it, and. And we went through this big thing. He was totally pro-vaccine. He was not willing to read anything, wasn't willing to investigate, wasn't willing to do any of that stuff. And it broke my heart. I was completely devastated, but we broke up because I could not imagine bringing children into the world and having to fight about this after the children were already here. Yes. You know, it's 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 interesting. Uh, I'm going to share something with you that wasn't really in our outline, but I think it's appropriate here. I've studied how consciousness grows and develops quite a lot. And I've studied the work of Ken Wilber, Arthur Young, and, and many who have spent a lot of time and energy uh, studying consciousness. And when Donald Trump became president, Ken Wilber stated that the, the, one of his main targets was fundamentalist Christians. And he showed that there, that the level of consciousness that a person's at when they are, shall we say, caught in that kind of programming is such that it doesn't matter how much scientific evidence you put in front of them or fact you put in front of them. They're just oblivious to it and they don't catch on. And what I see is that we, because we have a strata of consciousness out there, that that's the, you know, the traditional first, the levels of consciousness go magic, uh, myth, excuse me, mythical, no, magic, mythical, traditional, uh, modern, postmodern, integral in Ken Wilber's model. So that's sort of the stair step to higher levels of consciousness. Someone who's at the integral level is world centric. They're beyond ethnocentric differences. They have concerns for the world and, and the bigger issues of the world. But he showed that uh, it's between 65 and I believe 72% of the population is at the traditional level, which is the same level that fundamentalists are at. And it seems that we have a real problem. And that's why I was making the question, how is it that I'm going to the hospital and I can't get even an answer from doctors or nurses about what the side effects of these things are? And I'm having to have them bring the box to me and I'm announcing to them, oh, so you want to give my kid vitamin K and the first symptom is liver failure. That <laughs> That's just ridiculous. But we really have this very dangerous issue, and, and this relates to the conversation because when you're dating somebody, you might be at a structure stage of consciousness higher than that person and therefore be critical in your thinking and look at the research on both sides of the fence and make an intelligent, informed decision. But we have a, a big percentage of our population that doesn't even look at the facts and, and, and can become downright vile and violent and rude about it, as I'm sure you know. Yeah, they don't look at the facts. And they and there's this other whole area, like when you say that, it, that it's like they don't really, it, they, they really can't soak it in. Um, I do a, a, I did a presentation and it's, um, it's like, a, when, as soon as we open up Vaccine University, it's actually a free course. It's the first free course that people can take. And it's on, it's on cognitive dissonance. It's actually called, the title of the course is um, Vaccines and Cognitive Dissonance. Mm -hmm. So, and what, and what really is cognitive dissonance is everything that you just described there. It's that I, this is my world. 
This is my world. And now suddenly you introduce something into my world that just doesn't fit. Right. And so I have three options with that. One is I can completely not, I can just push it away and ignore it. I can do everything I can to dismiss it and, and to, and to um, maintain the integrity of my world. Or I can open up a crack and say, at least I'm going to explore this and see if this is something else I can take in to make my world bigger. Right. But generally what happens that to allow people to be open-minded enough to take in that little piece of cognitive dissonance, it, it usually has to be something that affects them directly. Because I've done lots and lots of polls on my Facebook page. I mean, my Facebook page has like 240,000 people. And we've done lots of polls over time. And I've said, why is it that... Uh, as as much information as is out there that people won't just ask the questions. I mean, when I started this almost, you know, 18 and a half years ago, Paul, there was, there was no Facebook. Google was barely getting started. Amazon really didn't even exist at that point in time or, or barely. There yeah. were no books out there of any of this stuff. There was no Facebook. And so now there are hundreds and hundreds of Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, you go to Amazon, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of books. There's papers everywhere. There's radio shows. There's podcasts. There's all this stuff. Sharing all of this information with people. And I've always done this to try to get just a little ahead of the curve to get people to just ask your girlfriend, what do you think about this? Yes. When you have a, when you have a baby, um, question and say, what's coming through that needle? May I please see the package insert? And if you can't read it, you should probably shouldn't be, if you don't know what those names are and the doctor can't explain it, you should probably not be injecting it into your baby. I mean, just get ahead of the curve just a little bit. You don't have to know everything that Paul Check knows. You certainly don't have to know everything that Sherry Tenpenny knows, but you just need to know a little bit, a little bit. I, and that's why, and that's why we put together our boot camp was yes. because we, where are the core things that always come up in every conversation when people first start investigating this? And how do you articulate it well? And we train people not only in the content, but in the language. And I put it together because I was so tired of answering the same questions over and over again. Yes. And we need to train an army. It's just like when you put together training your trainers, yeah. you got tired of being the trainer. Yeah. You wanted to train people to do what you did. Yes. Well, our boot camp is to train people to do what I do. Right. Yes. <laughs> That's what it's about. <laughs> I, I tell people in general and my students a very simple rule. If you can't pronounce a word on the label, chances are very good. It's not good for you. Yep. Exactly. We're really getting to some core issues here. I'm, I'm very grateful to, to be able to have this time with you and work through some of these questions. Um, I must share something with you though. Sherry, I, I, I'm often concerned for you because you're being so honest about this stuff. Uh, aren't you, how do you deal with the fact that you're putting yourself at quite a risk by being a medical doctor that's, uh, letting the cat out of the bag and, and, and working for the function of real medicine here? Well, several things. I've never operated in my entire life from a fear-based place about anything. I just don't. Yeah. And I feel that, um, you know, I'm, I'm an independent practitioner. So we have our own clinic, you know, Tenpenny Integrated Medical Center here in Cleveland, Ohio. So I'm not employed by a hospital system. So nobody in the hospital system has any, any leverage over top of me. There is nothing that I say that people can't look up and, and confirm 
from a, med- a, a, a mainstream medical reference. So what I've done in my books and my DVDs and, and my PowerPoint presentations and everything that I do, it's got a footnoted reference at the bottom from a mainstream journal. So what I'm basically doing is a review of the literature that they refuse to read. And so they can't, so I'm not making it up. I'm not lying. I'm not talking off the top of my head. It's not my opinion. What I'm doing is relaying that information. And I feel like, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen to me? I die. Oh, well, everybody has to do that someday anyways. (laughs) And, and someday I want, I know that, you know, some things you pick and some things pick you and this, and I remember back, this was, this is kind of a personal story, but this was maybe 2002. I was sitting in my upstairs. What I used to do was um, I used to work in my office from 9A to 6P and I'd run home and I'd make a stir fry for dinner and I'd have be up. That would be from like 630 to seven. And then I would run upstairs to my office and I would be in my at my desk from seven o'clock in the evening until like three o'clock in the morning, every single day. And on weekends, it would be 18 hours a day researching this stuff. And as you know, I used to occasionally come to Encinitas and hole up at the Moonlight Beach Hotel for like two weeks at a time and just research vaccines and write and study. And so I would spend all my time doing this. And I remember I was sitting upstairs and this was in the middle of winter. And I remember looking out my my window and it's like a little snow coming down, like a little Norman Rockwell moment, you know, outside. And I had just read this stuff about the pertussis vaccine and how, and, and it said that, uh, that even though there, since there was no, um, no syndrome caused by the pertussis vaccine, if a baby had a seizure disorder, myoclonics or jerks, which is a type of seizure disorder or SIDS after a pertussis vaccine, it had not, it, it was because it was going to happen anyways. And people just tend to blame the vaccine. And I remember, I remember that moment like it was yesterday. And I remember just staring at my computer screen and going, so this is what they tell physicians, that if a child has a reaction to a vaccine, it has nothing to do with the vaccine, it's because the child is defective and was going to have a seizure or die from SIDS anyways. And maybe the vaccine just pushed them over the edge or it was going to happen anyways and had nothing to do with the vaccine. And I just started sobbing. I just started crying. And I thought, oh, my God, this is what this is what physicians are told. And this is what they, they believe, that there's a, it's the defective child. And I remembered the time that working in the ER all those years and I did a, it was a night shift. And I remember it was like 530 in the morning, this young mother, I'll never forget her. She was she had on a white pajamas and a long kind of stringy snow blonde hair came running into the ER carrying a dead baby in her arms. Oh. And she said, and, and I remember her sitting there just crying and crying. And I remember her looking up to me with these little blue eyes that like reached into my soul and said, he just had his vaccines yesterday. Do you think it had anything to do with the vaccines? Yeah. And I said, no, of course not. It had nothing to do with that. And as I was walking from that mother who was sitting in a chair, rocking her dead baby in her arms back to the nurse's station going, wow, that baby was vaccinated. Must have been something wrong with that baby. I remember those thoughts, Bob. Yeah. I remember them. And then it fast forward 10, 15 years to 2002 when I read that in a pediatric journal and I started crying and I thought, this is what physicians are taught. Yeah. And, and I said out loud, I said, God, why did you give me this to do? This is so hard. And it's just people don't want to hear it. And people that have vaccinated their children, now they feel guilty. Why did you give me this to do? Why didn't you give me like 
Tony Robbins, go team Rob Rob. <laughs> exactly. And I, and I, out loud, I heard it out loud, like just like out loud, like I'm talking to you. And I was the only person in the house. And I heard a voice say to me, because you were willing to do the work. Yes, I've had experiences like that. I'm totally. And, and, I, and I, and I just, when I remember, and I heard that, I thought, wow. So that's a long winded answer to your question about a fear based place. That was 2002, I believe. Yeah. It's like, it's the, I keep doing this. Every time that I get really frustrated and I say to God, I say, okay, this is it. This is my two weeks' notice, man. <laughs> I'm giving you two weeks. Here's my, I'm going to write it on a piece of paper. Here's my two weeks' notice. You know, get busy, go find somebody else that I've already planted the seeds in his training. Actually, I'll even give you 30 days. I'll make it a 30 day notice. Go find somebody else. I'm done with this. Yes. And every time I've done that, some big opportunity comes up or I get a letter from somebody that says, it's because of you, my kids aren't vaccinated or something happens. And so then I go to God and I go, okay, I'll take it back off the table. I'll keep doing it, but, but put you on notice, man. You better start shopping around because one of these days I'm going to meet it for sure. You know? Exactly. Well, part- <laughs> and so, and I, cause I, I just want to someday when I die, because like I said, everybody does, um, I just want to meet my maker and have my maker say, at least in this area of my life, well done, good and faithful servant. You tried your hardest to save those children. You really tried to save the baby. Well, that's exactly what drives me. The reason I asked you the question, I, I don't live out of fear-based things either. I've pioneered many things have been attacked my whole career. So I'm used to the small mind. You know, Einstein said the great great minds always meet violent opposition by mediocre minds. And it's just a fact. But I do have a book in my library called The Politics of Healing by Haley that documents at least 12 cases of doctors that came up with uh, viable treatments for cancer and many other things that, that were basically disappeared off the face of the earth or were found with suicide notes. I know at least three physicians personally that uh, were threatened by the AMA to have their licenses take away simply for giving sound nutritional advice. I know one guy that stopped doing a lot of x-rays when he found out how damaging x-rays were, and then he got attacked by the AMA. So, uh, you know, I I just – because of the importance of the work you're doing, paradoxically, it it makes me concerned because, you know, you you can be conceived as a a, a financial liability to these corporations. Which I probably am. But, you know, way back when I first started this, you know, when after I went to that first NVIC meeting and I came home and started doing all this voluminous research in a very short period of time, um, I became really good friends with with Kathy Williams. And it was Kathy Williams and Barbara Lowe Fisher that started the National Vaccine Information Center. And I remember calling Kathy a lot and Kathy saying, you know, physicians usually don't stay in this for the long haul because they usually get, you know, they get pressure put on them or they get spooked or something like that. And, and she's, she's, she was the one who said, just never go to conspiratology.com use good references, Sherry, you're a physician, you can pull their journal articles and use it against them. Yes. And you have two ways of doing this. You can either do it really quietly, one-on-one in your office with your patients and make a difference like that, or do it in the biggest, loudest possible venue that you possibly can, because they're, they're not likely to make a martyr out of you. And so being the personality that I am, you know, I chose the latter, you know, and to, to kind of do it in a big way. And, and, you know, suddenly I was missing people with notice. And every single time that they, that the pharmaceutical industry has done something like 
like, for example, when they did the bird flu in 2005, and then they did swine flu in 2009. And then in 2013, when I was supposed to go to Australia and be there for a week speaking at various venues, and they made this huge, big international event about it and tried to get my visa pulled. And and I was on all these radio shows and television shows. I was beamed into the Today Show in Sydney, Australia twice because I was coming there to talk about, you know, vaccines and and I, I, I said, every time they do that, more people wake up. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and I remember when I, I, I was, I was interviewed by the, um, I was interviewed by the largest radio station, radio show, radio station in Sydney, Australia. And at the very end of the interview, this the um, the person who was interviewing me that, that said to me, he asked me this question. He said, "So, Doctor Tenpenny, were were you a little like taken back by the vociferousness of how they 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 said all this stuff about you and and what they've come after you about this?" And I said. Well, yes, because I was coming there as part of my holiday. I was an invited guest to speak in three, in five different cities at very small venues, about 200 people each. I was not the only speaker and I was invited there to speak. It wasn't something I set up on my own. Like they tried to make it sound like it was. I was one of like a panel of speaker at these like healthy living events. If I, I would have come in, I would have been there for like 10 days, spoken to about 1,400 people, and it would have been speaking to the choir because these are people who already knew me and wanted to hear me. You people are the ones who blew this up and made it into an international event. Yes. <laughs> we, we couldn't have paid for this much advertising. I mean, I could have been in and out of the country and you wouldn't even have known I was there. And the, 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 the guy, the interview guy that I was talking to, he kind of chuckled. He goes, well, I have to give you that one, <laughs> you know, because it was true. And I had people from Perth, Australia, who wouldn't even have known that I was in Sydney and Melbourne, you know, that were writing me and all this stuff over Facebook. And I was on radio interviews after that and in England and Scotland and Germany and the Netherlands and all over the place. And now suddenly everybody knew all about this anti-vaccine stuff that hadn't even given it a thought. So every time that they do something that that they think is like shutting down the voice of the anti-vaccine people, um, it just blows up in their face. I mean, look what they've done to Alex Jones. You know, they've de- they've taken him off of every single platform to shut him up, you know, and now they've even taken him off of Roku. Now, love Alex or hate Alex, agree with him or disagree with him. The whole point of of, of paying attention to that is if they can do that to somebody with his longevity and as big of audience, like 62 million people listen to Alex every week, they can do it to all of us. And we need to really stand up and fight for our right to say what we know is right. Well, that's really a serious issue that's at play here. I mean, you know, shutting websites down, controlling what people can say. Angie is part of a, a, a website for expecting mothers what to expect.com and she uh, ran into challenges by telling the truth with women asking questions and telling women that are doing some very stupid things. I mean, some of the things you see women doing when they're pregnant, like going to Starbucks and drinking triple shots of espresso and eating garbage and the long, long list, alcohol and and stuff. It's like they have no knowledge whatsoever. So, if someone tries to give good advice, they just shut you down or remove you. And and there's so much going on in so many areas where our, our freedom of speech is just completely being annihilated. And, and people are so busy playing video games or eating junk food that they're not aware of what's actually happening. And so this is kind of why I expressed this question to you, which wasn't really 
what I planned, but I just felt I, I had to share that uh, concern because, uh, I, you know, I, I, I really care about what you're doing and I care about you. And I, I personally, if it was me and I was in your boots, I'd be doing exactly what you're doing and say, if that's how I go, at least I go in service. At least you're fighting a real battle, not a pseudo battle. That's why I got out of the military. I realized I was just one of many guys that thought they were protecting a nation, but were actually just an instrument for rich people to steal shit. And that really pissed me off. But uh, so, so I've got a lot more questions. I want to get as many as I can while I have you. Uh, just know that m many of these questions were sent in by other people. So uh, if they sound a little off or whatever, we'll just have to work with them. Uh, my next question is what vaccines are commonly injected in pregnant women, such as the flu vaccine, and what are the known risks? So some of the things you'll have already touched on. So I'll just let you take it wherever you want to go as we run through these questions. We did that question. Oh, oh good. Well, there you go. Thank you. Okay. Maybe okay. I still have some mercury in my brain. Uh. <laughs> And, and the next one is, are vaccines considered safe? You've pretty much squared that one away. They're not. And here's an interesting comment. And do sick people take medicine or do healthy people take medicine? So I, I think that's a, a sort of a poetic question. I think what they're saying in there is, why are we injecting healthy people with something that we normally would do? In other words, you go see a doctor when you're sick, not when you're healthy, unless, you know, you go back to the old days in China where the doctor only got paid if you were healthy. And if you got sick, the doctor didn't get paid. So the doctor was motivated to keep you healthy. But I think what, what's happening here is are, are, vac are vaccines considered medicine is number one question. And do sick people take medicine? In other words, should we be taking vaccines and we already know the answer to that, but the, the, the philosophical question is, should people be taking medicines, i.e. vaccines prophylactically, i.e. Well, that's, that's all. It, well, wait a minute. Let's just stop yeah. there. Uh, vaccines are not medicine. Good. Yeah. Okay. Vaccines are, vaccines are called biologics. Okay, great. And they are, in, they are intended to be injected to prevent an infection. And so, and we've known from their inception that we give these to healthy people. And that is why the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Plan has paid out more than $4 billion to injured persons. And we think that's only about 10% of the, only about 10% of people that have an injury know about it and file for a claim. And of the people that file, only one out of four actually get compensation. Yes. And so they set that up because they know that we are injecting hazardous waste, hazardous waste into a clean body, and some people are going to get sick. Now, that's another whole discussion about how long, you know, what, what actually happens with that. And, and, and it's just a kangaroo court and it's a monkey system. Yes. But the, um, the um, U.S. Supreme Court has actually ruled that vaccines are unavoidably unsafe, unavoidably unsafe. So should we be injecting toxic waste, foreign matter into people with an attempt to ostensibly that it's supposed to keep you from getting an infection. But instead, what it does is it causes you to get a disease. Right, yeah. And a disease, you know, so I think that, uh, no, so it's not a medicine. It's not, it isn't. And so I think we can put that to bed and do the next one there. Yeah, well, the next one is, are any vaccine vaccinations safe? And I know from, because we hired you as a consultant for MANA because you're the only person I 
trusted on the issue. And, and your answer to us was no, not, if I remember right, none of them are safe. And we used your what you suggested for homeopathic remedies and, and followed your advice. And I'm very, very glad that we did. Uh, but just to hear it from you, are there any vaccinations that are safe? No. Okay. Um, what are some common vaccine injuries that you've seen in your own practice and how common are they? You've already described the first one of the lady who came in with a, a, a dead child, but what are some of the common vaccine injuries that you see and how common are they? Oh my, the, <laughs> a vaccine injury can be anything from a sore arm to a death. And along that continuum is asthma, allergies, eczema, ADD, ADHD, a long list of neurological complications, a long list of autoimmune diseases, I mean, diseases, autoimmune diseases like lupus. And, you know, it kicks off things like uh, um, uh, Sjogren's syndrome and rheumatoid arthritis and all sorts of, of uh, mixed connective tissue disease things. Um, and yes, vaccines cause autism. And there are at least, what, 57 studies now that have been proven. And there are at least 50, I believe, closed court cases through the vaccine court that uh, uh, people were compensated because their child did get autism from a vaccine. But in order to get the compensation, the people had to sign off and seal the document so nobody would know how much was paid and they would not ever be able to use that as a uh, court case, uh, as a court precedent for further, for further vaccine injury cases. So yes, vaccines can cause autism. We call it in, in, on the package inserts. They call it encephalopathy or encephalitis or um, any sort of like global um, neurological dysfunction. Anytime that you are injuring the brain, you can lead to a symptom complex that can that they have lumped together to label it autism. Yeah, that's that's. Uh... Sad. You know, one of the things I've noticed, I've watched, I don't know, how, countless documentaries now on, on vaccine injuries and, and issues uh, that are out there. And one of the things I've seen over and over again, I've probably seen at least three, if not four, where medical doctors, children themselves became autistic or got very, very seriously ill or died. And the doctors were just distraught and, and felt very deceived by the medical community and said when they started looking into it, they, they realized how much of a cover-up was going on. So we've talked about vaccines as potentially uh, being or, or being um, a source of population reduction. Um, and we've talked about it's, it's a, it's a, it's a huge profit industry. And we mentioned there's drugs designed for people from cradle to grave. I've actually got a slide that I borrowed from Robert Rakowski, uh, who lectures a lot for metagenics. And it shows which drugs they have scheduled from every, every step of your life from birth to death. So is there more going on than, than population reduction and money? No, it's all about money. I mean, think about it. I, th I talk, frequently call vaccines the economic loss leader of the pharmaceutical industry. You know, it's like if you're walking down the street and you see a sign in the store, come in here and we'll give you a free T-shirt worth $30, you know, yeah. or we'll give you a you know free T-shirt for $30. And now that we've got you in the store, we're going to try to sell you a $1,000 Armani suit. Right. And yeah, so yeah. the vaccines go for free or, you know, like how many times do I hear people say, I got my flu shot at work. Why did you do that? Well, it was free. 
oh, so if they were handing out shots of arsenic for free, would you have done that one too? You know, and so because it was free. And so they so they the, the vaccines, they either don't cost you anything. Your insurance pays for it. Your employer gives it to you. You get it at the public health department. Um, you get a free flu shot sometimes when you're over at, you know, I, I've seen these advertisements like a giant eagle, the grocery store chain here. You know, if you get your flu shot today, we'll give you twenty dollars, 20 percent off of your grocery bill today. You know, and so that the vaccines make people sick. People make people sick. They make people sick. You have to get that concept. Vaccines make people sick. And then when they get sick, they go they go through tens of thousands of dollars worth of medical tests, yes. blood tests, yep. x-rays, procedures. They go to dozens and dozens of experts and specialists for more t- tests and procedures. And along the way they get very expensive medications yes. in order to do that. So so the so it's my opinion that the vaccine industry is the cost driver for the entire pharmaceutical industry. And it's why they fight the unvaccinated so hard because you can't build a $1.3 trillion business on the backs of healthy unvaccinated children. Right. And so now if these kids come in and they get sick or an adult, they get a vaccine and they get sick, you know, the cost of care for those for those illnesses is astronomical. I mean, I have two girls in my practice that both are injured by the Gardasil vaccine. One is from Indiana and one is from Michigan. And each of those kids, each of those two girls have been to 19 different doctors before they came to see me. Now think about the cost of those bills, the blood tests, the x-rays, the tilt table tests, the MRIs, the, you know, all the medications, just the cost of the doctor's office visits, the cost to their parents of out of pocket on co-pays, the cost to their parents from missed days from work of having to take them to the doctor's office. It is in the billions of dollars, billions and billions of dollars of the, of what those people, those kids go through instead of somebody just saying, yeah, you had Gardasil and you had a bad reaction to it. Yes. Like if you got a if you got a shot of penicillin and you had a bad reaction, you would wear a medic alert bracelet the rest of your life. No more penicillin. You have a bad a bad reaction to a vaccine. Oh, that's okay. It wasn't the vaccine. Here's your next one. Yeah, I mean we do a better job against pr- protecting people against peanut allergies than we do against the risks of being part of a medical system that's supposed to be here to protect us. And you know, one of the things I tell my students is, is sort of a, a pointed joke is that the medical industry would do a good job to tear a page out of the uh, drug pushers handbook because drug pushers know that if they wipe their population out, they've got nobody to sell their drugs to. But I find it paradoxical that they're literally wiping out their market. I mean, are they so short-sighted that they don't realize that ultimately they're killing off their market? Well, it's sort of like socialism, isn't it? <laughs> you know, when they say, you know, every all these big, you know, these new democratic people in Congress right now that they're all all about socialism. And it was Margaret Thatcher who said the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's monies. Uh, yeah. So it's a, so it's the same thing with the vaccine industry. You know, eventually you run out of people to kill. But, you know, they got 7.2 billion people that they need to mess with first. And so, you know, between the vaccines, between the glyphosate and the food, between the geoengineering and between the onset of 5G, they're out to kill all of us. They really are. And so, um, you know, the best we can do is what we can do. You know, the best we can do is what we can do. Yeah, the 5G story is a, an interesting one. I'm going to be interviewing a guy named Nick Pino, who's an expert on 
EMF issues and 5G issues. So uh, we'll we'll get into that one with him, but that, that's certainly another one. I won't segue us. One of my questions I wanted to ask you, and th- this is something I find quite paradoxical and interesting. There's been a lot of violent resistance to kids showing up at school because they're not vaccinated by parents whose kids are vaccinated. Yet the whole point of being vaccinated is to protect you. Yet it just doesn't. Get, it just doesn't get any more stupid than I, that. I it? know. I'm, I mean, they they don't have a vaccine for stupid. They just don't. Well, you know what I. You know what I. What I. <laughs> I kind of because because I study consciousness. I, I have a twist for you on that one. I think that might be it. Might be a precognitive awareness that the vaccines themselves don't work and they don't trust the vaccinations. But because they're so brainwashed, they don't realize that they're very resistance against the other kids is only making a statement that they don't even trust their vaccinations that they're using themselves. Well, there's probably some truth to that. And the other thing is, is I, that's, that's difficult is that because parents don't ask questions and they don't, you know, they don't just even say, you know what, we're, we're only going to give one at a time, or we're just going to wait on that. We just, I, I need to do a little bit more research first. And they just have blindly followed this other human being over there that's blindly following the CDC's recommendations or blindly following what their boss tells them to do. I mean, it's truly the blind leading the blind. And, and, it's, and so now they end up with their kid who's fully vaccinated and sick, and suddenly the fog lifts out of their brain and they start going, oh my God. I really wonder if it was the vaccines. And then there is this enormous layer of guilt because they were the parent. They allowed this to be done to their child when they could have said no. They could have scooped their little baby up off the off the off the bench and run out with them. Now, instead of saying, oh, my God, I'm not you know, I have to deal with my own guilt about this and I'm not going to let this happen to any of my children anymore or me either. Instead of taking a proactive stance. Instead, they defend their guilt by saying, oh, my doctor told me that this was the right thing to do, and I trust my doctor. Right. Zig Ziglar calls that kind of thinking ready, fire, aim mentality. Exactly. Exactly. It's a a pretty interesting thing uh, to see how people just don't think very effectively at all. Uh, In fact, I have a, a really nice quote by the quantum physicist, David Bohm, he said, thinking is challenging. That's why most people just rearrange their prejudices. Ooh, that's a good one. It's true. I mean, you know, most people don't look, they believe, they read anything. And, 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 and this goes back to this concept of me asking, do you think there's a connection between religious programming and the connection between priests and, and medical doctors wearing you know, the sort of the priest uniform, and that's been investigated. And um, when I studied brainwashing, because I did a course on how to use the techniques of brainwashing to heal yourself from, from you know, painful ideas or social ideas or religious ideas that are self-diminishing, etc. And my research showed that the Catholic Church had brainwashing mastered by the 8th century, and they've been perfecting it ever since. And I think that this concept, and I'm not trying to say I'm against religion, I'm not even against uh, anything that's safe for people. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm exploring this with you, not because I have something against vaccinations, because I'm, I'm, I'm a moral person. And by definition, a moral is a code of conduct that is life affirmative. Ethics mm-hmm. are codes of conducts that may or may not be life affirmative. When I was a paratrooper, I had a book about 
four or 500 pages thick I had to memorize about who to kill and who not to kill and what you do in a battlefield if you capture somebody. And those are ethics, but they're not morals because you're killing and that's not pro-life. And so my whole investigation with you is really a moral investigation. Are we really protecting life with vaccines? And that's what the medical system's supposed to be doing. And, and, and I, I wouldn't have hired you as a consultant for my own child if I could trust the medical literature. And, and as you said, you can find good medical literature. Uh, I've used medical literature a thousand times to show them that what they're doing isn't even supported by their own literature. But we're, we're really at sort of a, a, a moral injunction. And part of the problem is that scientists have avoided morality for a very long time because they say that's not in the domain of science. But well, look, look how many drugs have been scientifically approved only to be taken off to the shelf after thousands and thousands of people have died. Look at all the scientific uh, inventions that, that were supposed to be good, but turned out to be major problems, like the one we just hinted on, 5G. Uh, so we have faster phones and we got sick people uh, all over the place. And, you know, so one of the questions I had coming up here is, is um, do you think that maybe they're doing some form of mass experimentation on the public with these drugs or is it strictly profit or is it a social research project? No, I don't think it's um, I don't think it's a social research project. I don't think they think that deeply. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> true. Yes. I think it's really just about commerce. It really is about um, the people who in the pro vaccine sector actually goose step to the mantra, vaccinate, 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 vaccinate. And I, I always have this pick image in my head. If you look, if you remember like, um, watching World War II black and white films of people, you know, marching Heil Hitler past, uh, you know, in, in, in goose stepping to Hitler, you know, pat, on those black and white films. And that's, you know, our public health service, the people that the CDC, they wear military uniforms. I mean, that's what their dress is. And I see them just like vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. They march to that. They, they all march goose step to that. And, and then it's like vaccinate everyone on time with this fabricated schedule that we put together that's never been tested for carcinogenicity, mutagenicity, teratogenicity, um, infertility. We have no, we've never tested to see if these vaccines cause cancer, how they mess up your genes, how they have any effect on your genes, if they cause infertility. If you read every single package insert on every single vaccine, it will say that. Um, that they've never been tested for those things. Yeah. But yet our government says you have to take these vaccines. It's like we do it, all the vaccines on schedule, on time, and we have to get rid of those pesky exemptions. We can't have people opting out because if suddenly we had a big population of unvaccinated kids, somebody is going to get smart enough and somebody is going to put up the two or three million dollars to be able to do that real research to compare the health of vaccinated versus unvaccinated kids. Well, they I can't wouldn't have a population. Yeah, like I, would, that. I wouldn't doubt if it's, it's happening somewhere right now. You know, and you mentioned the CDC wears military uniforms and having been in the military, there's no question that basic training and a lot of military training is brainwashing. And to make the point, I would like to sing you a short song that we used to sing while we were marching in basic training. And it goes like this. I love to fight. I love to kill. I love to use my military skill. I love to throw my hand grenade. I love the thunder that it makes. 
uh, let me see. I love the, th- um, I, I love to fight. I love to kill. Loved you. I love to, um, uh, I can't remember the rest of it, but it goes on and it, and it basically uh, says, I'll, I'll kill. I want to kill a commie for mommy. I'll make a necklace of his teeth. And so these are the kinds of things that, that you're programmed with over and over and over. I mean, you're marching this, singing these songs as you're marching everywhere you go and, and getting all hyped up to go destroy people, but you have no idea whatsoever why you're doing it. And that's exactly what concerned me when I was going to all these doctors with Angie for our little baby and I couldn't get a straight answer out of anything. And I'm like, I'm, you're a medical doctor. You are supposed to know what in the hell you're putting into people and how it works and what's safe and what's not safe. And it was as though I was just talking to robots. It's like going to someone at Starbucks and asking them, could you pull my espresso a little short? I like it stronger than you typically make it at Starbucks. Oh, we can't do that. Why not? Oh, because we're told we have to do it this way. I'm telling you, I like it differently. All you got to do is pull the damn cup out from under the tap a little sooner. Oh, I can't do that. And that's brainwashing. Um, but so the, 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 that leads to one of my questions. Where do you feel the tipping point is with research and public awareness where we're going to finally reach the point where we just say that's enough of this shit? We're not going to let any more of our kids get ruined and Ill, made sick and, get diseases by your little game. And, and uh, you know, there has to be a point where we stand up and fight collectively or, uh, well, it doesn't take more than two brain cells holding hands to see that the future is very bleak playing this little uh, game of succumbing to a large sales force that has the power to really mess with people. Well, there are a lot of things happening all over the world. In fact, I would say that you know, I've been saying for as long as I've been doing this, when is the hundredth monkey going to show up? You know, the whole yes, hundredth exactly. monkey, you know, with the hundredth monkey for people that don't know, there's this, essentially means in a nutshell that, that finally enough people are aware of a particular concept that suddenly everybody does the concept, you know? And so, um, and so, right, yes. so sooner or later it's going to happen. And there are, I, I mean, I'm working with a group in Europe right now that is on fire about getting the Gardasil vaccine stopped on the Isle of Man and in the UK. I mean, these people are, I mean, they make, they make me look like I'm a, I sit on the bench and do nothing. I mean, they are on fire. There's legal teams. There's, there's uh, lawyers that are involved from uh, five different countries. Uh, there's journalists involved. There's big time activists. There's moms. There's a, there, so I'm, I'm, and I'm sort of the, uh, the scientific, the doctor person who's feeding the information into that. So they're on fire over there. There's a lot of activity going on in South America. I believe that there's more activity going on here than we actually know about. In fact, um, there was, this just came out and, and that we posted it on Vaxter today. So I just, on Vaxter, you know, the VAXXTER.com. I'm going to read you the first sentence. The World Health Organization now lists vaccine hesitancy and vaccine safety advocates as a threat to the world, specifically, quote, the delay in acceptance or refusal of vaccines despite their availability is listed in the World Health Organization's top 10 health threats facing the world in 2019. I read that this so morning. If, so and, if, we're and, not, uh, make, if, if we weren't a big enough voice, if we weren't 
growing in numbers, if there weren't people waking up and saying, wait a minute, like all these mandates that just happened in Italy and, and they did the same thing in France and the Italians voted them out of office. I mean, have you been following that story about what's happened in, in Italy? Uh, I, I have only picked up a little bit. Didn't you publish some of that on Vaxter? Yeah, I did. Let's let's talk about that for yeah. a minute. Sure. Because back in, let's see, it would have been like summer of 2017, um, the, uh, the, the Italian government voted to make 11 vaccines. It was actually 10 vaccines that were mandatory and two more that were, that were recommended for all kids to be able to attend public school. And they never had this sort of a mandate in the entire country before. And the Italian people were on fire. I mean, they were marching in a way that you would never see happen in the U.S. because people here are too scared to go out their front door and they won't get their heads out of their phones to be able to well they're too drugged i suppose it's true <laughs> or they're too afraid everybody's oh what will my neighbor think you know they're too afraid of all that stuff another topic anyways yeah. there marched hundreds of thousands of people in multiple big cities across italy and not only did they march in the streets they took to their they they got out of their chairs and they voted them all out of government they voted them out of office and when they reinstalled their new um their new government their their election was in the in the fall of 2018 and when they put their when they put the new government in they 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 uh, they fired their entire health their entire health ministers it would be like our new government going in and firing the entire cdc and starting over and saying and now everybody's like what you mean it's like because we aren't going to have this vaccine stuff we're not. And then in the meantime, while this is happening, there's a company in Italy called Corvelva, C-O-R-V-E-L-V-A, Corvelva. They're a scientific research company. And actually, I was just writing another article about them today that'll go up on Baxter tonight and out tomorrow. Um, because what they actually did was they were actually taking the vaccines and testing them. And the first vaccine that they tested was called Infanrix Hexa, which is a, a, a vaccine. It's the very first vaccine that kids get in Europe when they get vaccinated. And it's a combination vaccine of DPT, polio, and hepatitis B. And when they actually tested the vaccine, they found out that it had no polio and no hepatitis B in it at all. And so if you, so it was, and they had 200 and some different vaccine contaminants. They found cross-contamination from other vaccines, which means that they didn't clean the equipment before they started making this particular run of vaccines. Um, and they found all kinds of polymers and they found different metals that didn't belong there. And so this vaccine is all risk and no benefit. Well, now they've tested four more vaccines. They've tested another seven in one vaccine and they've tested Gardasil 9 and they're finding the same things that the what's on, written on the label is not what is in the vaccine. And so they are like on fire. They're doing this by, by, uh, by chromatography. They're, uh, people were saying, because the first thing that happens then is that they try to like discredit their, their, their testing procedures. You know, the machine goes into gear and they said, no, um, we use protein detection standard, uh, protein detections, meaning finding the viruses and bacterial particles in there by using a standard that has been used and accepted internationally for more than 10 years. And we separated them by chromatography and then we analyzed them by spectrography. So there is absolutely perfect science behind this. And they are finding that all of these things are mislabeled. Now they're going to start testing vaccines from the United States. And I just think that the American Trial Lawyers Association ought to be, ought to be like looking like wily e. coyote, man. They ought to be wringing their hands and licking their lips because if every single one of those vaccines has been mislabeled and sold to the public and injected, 
And we have all these people who are injured now and that that um, that the doctors have been blowing them off. And what they've been injected with is foreign matter that's not labeled. That is a labeling problem. And that I believe that the, the, the drug companies can get sued for every one of those vials. Like, like if it's Gardasil 9 times however many vials that were actually produced and how many vials that were actually administered, I think it could bring the entire industry down. Well, I, I, my fingers are crossed. I, I believe Mother Nature has its own means of balancing things. And uh, I think it's just a matter of time. I mean, people, people either have to start standing up or they just have to suffer the consequences of what now countless documentaries are showing, including medical doctors, you know, having to realize that they fell hook, line and sinker for uh, a story that wasn't, uh, wasn't ethical. Uh, or moral. Um, and so uh, my hat's off to the Italians and I hope everybody listening uh, feels inspired to uh, uh, eat some pasta, preferably gluten-free and, and, and uh, get a little Italian uh, blood going through us because, and that's why I'm here doing this with you is, is exactly that. My, my um, one of the questions I had sent in was about herd mentality and I, I gave you the the little bit of information. I think what I'll do real quick is just read what was sent in and then let you comment on that. Is that fine yep, with you? That's fine. So uh, it says uh, what herd mentality is really about, about uh, really all about don't forget your measles shot. So here's the description of herd mentality. The herd immunity theory was originally coined in 1933 by a researcher called Hedrich. He had been studying measles patterns in the United States between 1900 and 1931, years before any vaccine was ever invented for measles, and he observed that epidemics of the illness only occurred when less than 68% of children had developed natural immunity to it. This was based upon the principle that children build their own immunity after suffering with or being exposed to the disease. So the herd immunity theory was, in fact, about natural disease processes and had nothing to do with vaccination. If 68% of the population were allowed to build their own natural defenses, there would be no raging epidemic. Later on, vaccinologists adopted the phrase and increased the figure from 68 to 95% with no scientific justification as to why, and then stated that there had to be a 95% vaccine coverage to achieve immunity. Essentially, they took Hedrich's study and manipulated it to promote their vaccine programs. So you and I talked briefly about that. And you said there were some inaccuracies there, but could you share uh, what your thoughts are on this herd mentality concept? Well, it's actually herd immunity. And first of all, uh, you know, there's a couple of things. Uh, the only thing that was wrong in there, whoever wrote that was really dead on right. But if you go back and really look at the original papers, which I have, because one of the courses uh -huh. in the, you know, in when we do the vaccine, when we do the Mastering Vaccine Info boot camp course, it's an eight-week course. And one of the modules inside of the course is on herd immunity. Because that's one of the things we talk about, small, smallpox, polio, herd immunity, the vaccine schedules, uh, vaccine financing, and um, 
And, and that's, that's what we, you know, we go through each one of those different things. And so the herd immunity thing is what always comes up. The original study, it was even uh, lower statistics than what the gentleman said who wrote that. When he said 68%, it was actually 55%. So you only needed to have yeah, okay. 55% or a little bit more than half of the people of those children between the ages of 1 and 15 who had contracted real measles and that that protected the very young and the very old. And what that actually does is when you have real natural immunity, that if uh, uh, um, what has happened with that is that it's engaged both sides of your immune system. So it's engaged your cellular immune system, your innate immune system, the toll-like receptors, T-O-L-L, the toll-like receptors, which I'm writing a whole book on that one, Paul. I mean, I've got it half done. It's like so amazing, the toll-like receptors, and the, which is like on the TH1 side of the equation versus the TH2 side of the equation where you develop antibodies. The antibodies are the cleanup crew in a natural infection. The first thing that happens is white blood cells and macrophages and toll-like receptors and cytokines that they, they do this really cool thing. Like they get together and they turn up the heat and they cause fever. I've written an entire ebook on the importance of fever. And if people sign up at Vaxter.com, that, that's one of the free, free gifts that I send you for joining up for our email list is an ebook on the importance of fever. That's the TH1 side of the equation. And just, and when they, when the white blood cells have have won the battle and they're they're they've, they're done with the infection and they can start turning down the temperature, the the B cells come along and, and squirt out a little antibody as the cleanup crew to help um, to, to get rid of all this garbage that is in your that is circulating in your system from having this infection, and they start re- saying, "Okay, I remember this. We we remember this," and so that is the long term innate immunity that happens between the Th one and the Th two equation. So when you've had real natural infection, whether it's measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, um, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, all those viral infections, and to a certain degree, some of the bacterial infections too, but not quite as much. Um, that's what, that then, then when you get exposed to say measles, because that's what we were talking about with the measles, your body goes, I remember that, no big deal, squirt, squirt, here's a little of my natural innate antibodies just to neutralize that. And, and make it go away because that stops the person to person transmission. And when the vaccine came into being in 1963, when the measles vaccine was introduced in 1963, it, it blocked this person to person transmission. And that's what stopped the perpetuation of the, of the infection. But it was only 55% of the population. And then they noticed that as it, that, as that went down, as there were fewer and fewer of teenagers and the age appropriate time to develop measles is somewhere between seven and 10 years of age. And when that population started to, to go down and there were more people who had not had the infection, there'd be another little outbreak and they'd have an outbreak and, and, and it would be a fever, a cough, and a rash and it would go away and that would perpetuate the uh, the uh, protection of the very young and the very old and it was like 55% and what your gentleman said who wrote that was absolutely right that they that they um, they transferred the concept of natural immunity into medically induced antibodies which then they labeled as immunity and it was a textbook that was published in the 19, late 1930s, early 1940s, that um, this, this textbook actually started to um, kind of make fuzzy math. They started making like fuzzy words, like um, if you were vaccinated, you were called immune. 
But if you are not vaccinated, you were called susceptible. And even if you'd had the infection, you were still considered to be susceptible because you'd not been vaccinated. And so the, the, the language started to get really super messy until a really important paper came out, was published in 1971, that actually said that used the word herd immunity and vaccination together and that we have to vaccinate everyone all the susceptible people, because if we have small little pockets of unvaccinated people, which they called the susceptibles, that could blow up and cause a pandemic. And so all of this started from the 1970s and this whole issue about making, we couldn't just have small little outbreaks and that be okay. And, you know, so what if you had 30 cases of measles or 20 cases of pertussis? So what? It rolled into a concept that evolved out of the 1960s and 70s called eradicationism. And, um, James Colgrove wrote about that a lot in his book called State of Immunity, and he called it eradicationism because suddenly the public health department and and, uh, the public health powers that be decided that controlling infections was not good enough. We had to vaccinate, 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 vaccinate until we eradicated those pathogens, which will never happen because the, the, the measles has a, a, the measles has a, a a life cycle. Every two to three years, you're going to see outbreaks of measles, irrespective of vaccination rate. Pertussis bacteria has a life cycle of every four to seven years that you're going to see an uptick of pertussis vaccine outbreaks, irrespective of vaccination rate. But it gives them an excuse to revaccinate or to vaccinate more or to perpetuate this fear like, oh my God, measles oh no which we know from real statistics that the death rate from measles was three per million before the vaccine even came out and that was in 1963 yeah what's uh i'm gonna ask a question that that i don't know if i've asked yet if i have didn't remind me but uh there has been some discussion in various forums. I, I, I don't know if I read it in any of your newsletters, but there has been some discussion that these corporations are actually manufacturing infectious, infectious agents and then blowing up the, uh, you know, overexposing and marketing saying, look how many people are dying of all this. Uh, is there any truth to this? Yeah, they, they certainly, you know, the U.S. government holds dozens and dozens, if not more, mm-hmm. patents on microbes that they've actually patented viruses and bacteria, and then they license them back to the, to the drug companies uh, for the drug companies to use them in experiments and make vaccines and drugs and things like that. It's one, if you look at, it's one of the largest line items in terms of revenue generating line items that our U.S. government actually has. And in the process of doing that, like there's a lot of uh, different herpes viruses and, 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 um, variola viruses, um, uh, um, mycoplasma and they've weaponized mycoplasma and they, and they license those back to the government. If you talk to, if you read Judy Mikovic's book, it's called, the name of the book is Plague. And she was a virologist and there's a lot of YouTube videos out there about her that I think if your listeners are interested in that topic, topic, look up Judy Mikovic's and, um, how do you spell it? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. Hold on one second and I'll spell it directly for you here. I'll pull up her email address of Judy. It's uh, M-I-K-O-V-I-T-S, Mikovits. Mikovits. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mikovits, Judy Mikovits. 
and her book's name is Plague. And she, she, I had, you know, Judy's a good friend of mine and we had lunch sometime. We've had lunch, I think it was like last spring sometime. And we were talking about Ebola. She said that Ebola was in my lab. I worked with Ebola and I know exactly what they did to it. Ebola was an absolutely benign virus, did nothing to anybody until there were 17 different revisions that were done to to, to particular genes in the Ebola bacteria to make it be a hemorrhagic virus. And I, it was in yeah. my lab. They did it. I saw it. I actually saw them do this. It was an absolutely benign virus. And so we know for sure about that one. And so do they weaponize things? Yeah, they do. I mean, there's another book that I read. It's called Germs. And they talk about all the different military tests that they've done on the not only the U.S. population, but other populations to see how far bacteria will spread in the air and they aerosolize things. And so, yeah, there's some pretty nefarious things out there that really are not conspiracy theories if you go looking for the answer. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you that. And, you know, I, I'm going to just interject a comment here. This is not by any means something that only happens in the medical industry or uh, in, in to guard, regard to vaccinations, um, I'll give you a simple example. So, because I want, I don't want people to to have the feeling that I'm or you are attacking uh, just li- like j- just rabid hunters out trying to take people down. But what I'm trying to say here is that there's other industries doing the same thing. Um, I come from a background in, in drag racing, stock car racing, and I was a mechanic. As a young man, I went to school to be a mechanic. Um, and when I was racing stock cars, uh, at that time, Chevrolet changed the composition of their engine blocks. And I don't remember what year it was, but uh, for anyone that's got been around cars long enough, all the blocks, the engines on Chevrolet cars used to be all uh, an orange, a, a real strong orange color. And all of a sudden, the engine blocks started coming out blue, and, and mechanics noticed that the cars were – the engines were wearing out much faster. Well, one thing led to another, and basically what we found out was that Chevrolet changed the composition of the metal because they were not making enough money on repairs. The engines were lasting too long, so they designed the engines to wear out about forty or 50,000 miles sooner so that they could make more money on – people buying more cars and doing more mechanical repairs and buying more car parts. Uh, So here's an example of another industry playing games with people in order to make more money. Uh, So I'm trying to be holistic and say, this is just, it seems to be that human beings will do almost anything to make money, including killing each other, including lying to each other and manipulating, et cetera. Um, one of the questions that I have on deck here is I have a lot of students in Australia and I was shocked. I think I read it on your policy about the policy that they have there where if the kids don't get vaccinated, they can't go to school and it's causing huge problems with a lack of attendance in schools. And a lot of the school teachers are concerned about that. I'm wondering of all the countries that you've investigated this, are there any countries that are doing anything ethical other than what you just described in Italy as far as the application of the concept of vaccinations? Hmm. Uh, you mean like testing them or? No, I mean uh, being ethical and how they're applying medicine 
with regard to protecting oh, people. Oh, no, of course not. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry rules everybody in every country. Yeah. I mean, you know, there even, you know, in our country, I mean, how many lobbyists are there's There's three pharmaceutical lobbyists, two or three pharmaceutical lobbyists for every single person in Congress. It's more lobbyists than the sum total of like gas and oil, um, the, the, the next three. Like the next three lobbyist numbers, add them together. It's it's more money than all of that in the pharmaceutical industry. So they're in everything. They're everywhere. I mean, everywhere you look. I mean, you know, and the the built the Gates Foundation has its dirty fingers in everything. The Gates Foundation yeah. uh, funded uh, between 2010 and 2020. They put up ten billion dollars. I mean, geez, they could have built the wall with that aside, yeah. you know, $10 billion to fund this to be the decade of vaccines from 2010 to 2020. So we're getting close to the end of that. And part of that is the evolution of Healthy People 2020 to have a 95% vaccination rate in all age groups of the flu shot and 80% vaccination rate of all the rest of the vaccines. So I think that it, during the rest of this year, once these uh, newly elected people get settled into their new jobs, all of those bills bills that have already been pre-written and are laying in drawers just waiting to be submitted, we're going to start seeing uh, a rollout across the country of similar legislations like SB 277 in California to do away with these exemptions so that they can achieve their goals of Healthy People 2020, of the decade of vaccines to make sure everybody on this planet is vaccinated. Well, I can tell you what, I'm healthy enough and fit enough, even at 57 years of age, to use every ounce of my influence and all the students I have around the world to put up one hell of a fight for humanity and for morality, because this is just, it's got to go. I mean, I'm all for medicine. I'm all for anything that's moral. I'm all for helping people. But when it comes to downright manipulation of science, and this is this is also what, what amazes me, Sherry, is this is a massive uh, blow to science. I mean, science is being drugged down the drain with all this horseshit. Science is supposed to be science. It's supposed to be honest investigation of things to find out the truth. But it, we've gotten to the point now where where science is no longer reliable, and the problem is is that. There's so much of this out there now, you probably have to read 40 studies that are bullshit to find one that's telling you the truth, but we've got a whole generation of people that are raised on bogus science, and I don't know if you know, but Rupert Sheldrake, you know who Rupert Sheldrake mm -hmm. is? Nope. Oh, Rupert Sheldrake's a genius scientist. He developed the concept of the morphogenic field, famous, famous biologist. He's got several books out there. He has a book called Science Set Free, and he goes through all the games science plays to manufacture truths and create illusions. And he did a TED Talk on on the principles of science and, and what's being done in the name of science and how wrong it is and, and exposes how many of the things that they tell you that are absolute fact that are just not factual at all. And they banned this TED Talk. And it got something like 2 million views right away, even after it was banned. But we, we really, this is a time in our lives where we've got to protect the validity of science because medicine is supposed to be based on science. And, and we're losing science. We're losing freedom of speech. We're losing our health. And I, I say to people, you got to stop eating junk food. 
And you got to start paying attention and doing your own research, or you're going to end up having to defend yourself. You're going to have to figure out how to get your sick child healthy or yourself healthy when you're too sick and too tired to do the kind of work it takes. You know, when I looked at a lot of these documentaries where a medical doctor's child got very, very sick, injured, or killed by vaccinations, and they had to do tons of research to figure it out. And oftentimes, one of the the, the husband and wife was so busy with the child, the other one had to go do all the research. But what do you do when people don't even know how to do the research? They, you know, and they make it very hard to get to the real research. So th- this is like, a, in my opinion, this is a very important time for all of us to, and I hope, I hope all the skeptics listening to this are smart enough to join your boot camp specifically so they can get access to all the research because like you said the research is coming right from the medical journals and when they can look at the research and then even talk to scientists to ask if these are valid studies they will be faced with the fact that they have to come face to face with this dragon that we're all facing so We've got a few more questions I'd like to run through if 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 you're up for that. Yeah, I'm up for it. I'm up for it. Yeah, you're strong. <laughs> I do want I do want to um, address that what you just said though a little bit because it's yeah, because it's really do. it's really super true that you know we you know Paul Offit who's the darling of the pro vaccine industry said the science is done it's on our side case closed. Yeah, which which right. is just I mean, when you take that apart, when is science ever done? And this, and when you really want to analyze the science, in a way, he's right. Uh, the science is the science is, is is case closed. The results are on our side. You know, my my husband was a was a pilot in the in the Navy, and he said when they would do their walk around on the uh, the airplanes before they would take off, it, he said there was a rule, and the the rule was if there's any doubt, there's no doubt. So if there's any slight thing, question about safety, about something might be wrong, then there's no doubt we're not flying. And so when we've got all of these people being injured, maimed, and killed by the vaccines, and now we're finding what Corvelva is putting out there of all these toxins and you know chemicals that they don't even know what they are. They're combinations of their precipitates and polymers and things like that. If there is any doubt that these vaccines are causing harm, they're all risk and no benefit, there should be an immediate across the board in every country for every vaccine, a complete moratorium of injecting this nonsense into human beings until we figure this out. Well, absolutely. And if if you or I were to go on television today, and I'll just make something up here to make a point, and we said, uh, if you juice blueberries, it'll enhance your sex drive and increase your vitality. It wouldn't take five minutes before some major government establishment would shut you down and say, you don't have the science to back that. You're dot, dot, dot. They just get rid of you. Yet here they are, the very people that we're supposed to be trusting, who establish laws to protect from snake oil salesmen. And they turn out to be the exact ones that are, I mean, you're not going to kill anybody with blueberry juice, but we're being sold diseases in the name of science. And I, I think that's absolutely just got to go. It just can't go on. Well, and here's another thing. You know, the the U.S. and New Zealand are the only two countries in the world that allow television ads 
uh, funded by the pharmaceutical industry. That's it. So the next time somebody in the U.S. or is watching a U.S. channel, and you you know how you hear these television commercials for these drugs, and out of a 60-second spot, 40 seconds of it is talking about the side effects and the possible complications, blah, blah, blah. Well, the next- It's mind-boggling. Well, the next time you hear a vaccine commercial, which is either for pertussis, like the big bad wolf thing, or Terry Bradstreet, or, you know, Bradshaw, uh, the talking about the shingles vaccine, or you, any of those commercials- Listen to them closely. It's a 60-second commercial without one word about side effects or complications, not one. I honestly believe it's an FTC violation. I think that, you know, because everything that is is a possibility. And some smart lawyer out there, maybe somebody who's listening to this, should be able to research that and figure that out. Yeah, you know, you reminded me of something that, that I wanted to get your opinion on. I, I found what I'm about to share with you revolting. That's the Golden Globe Awards when they showed up and wanted to give everybody vaccinations. And they even said, if you don't want your vaccination, that's okay. Well, I think the guy said, we'll put a garbage can over your head, like trying to embarrass anybody that didn't want their flu shot. I mean, what is the world coming to when they're using television and a large uh, uh, a show that attracts a huge audience because it's famous actors and actresses and they're giving flu shots? That, what, what, I mean, that made me sick to my stomach. I'm like, television is now just turned into prostitution full force. You can't rely on trust anything anymore. I mean, what, what's your take I on I totally that? agree. I mean, it is nothing more than, you know, it's, it's Soviet, it's a Soviet style propaganda tool. And it, but instead it of, of calling it for what it is, we call it entertainment. And then if we call it entertainment, yeah. then we don't see through the propaganda of what's being fed to us on a daily basis. I call it brainwashing full force. Yeah, it's it's brainwashing and then some. It really is. Yeah, it, it, it is brainwashing and then some. And the sum is a long list of dot, dot, dots, unfortunately. And it's scary. Um my next question is what ingredients are in MMR, whooping cough, and influenza, and how might they affect the body positively or negatively? Well, That's from one I'm of not, my I'm not, I'm, one of I'm my not students. gonna go into that. That is way too okay. long to do, and there are plenty of lists out there on the on the internet. You can you can put in go into Google and put vaccine in, list, comma, vaccine ingredients and find that anywhere. So I'm I'm not gonna take up our time going through each one of those. I just not. <laughs> okay. No. Well, you you can choose. You yeah, know. That's just way too uh, much. But they, they, well, obviously, from what everything we said, that they're not safe anyhow. Yeah, so, Is that the short yeah, answer? Yeah. So why bother? I mean, you know. Yeah. Okay. Well, like I said, I collected questions, I so you can just you can edit as we yeah. go. Uh, some have reported glyphosate being found in vaccine. Is it true? And if so, what's the effect of glyphosate in vaccines? Well, it is true. I mean, it it is true. I mean. Um, um, Stephanie Seneff's group, Jeff, Stephanie Seneff and her group um, out of MIT have actually tested the vaccines and have found traces of glyphosate. And what glyphosate actually does is it replaces glycine and it's getting into the vaccines by, uh, by gelatin, which is an, and bovine serum. And so the cows go out in the field and they eat the, the, uh, the grass that's been sprayed with Roundup, which is what the glyphosate is the active ingredient inside of Roundup, and it gets into their yes. gets into their 
body and then the bovine serum that we use to grow MMR vaccines and hepatitis A and other, uh, I think there's a couple of more. Um, and the gelatin, which is in the chickenpox vaccine and the shingles vaccine, has traces of the glyphosate in it. And it goes in and it replaces the glycine molecule inside of the DNA and causes disruptive um, transcription. And I just had a yeah. discussion with, about this with somebody the other day that once you've got that in your body, that you can't get it out. The glyphosate. Yep. Yeah, um, I'm actually going to be doing a podcast coming up uh, pretty soon with Dave Murphy, the uh, founder of Food Democracy Now, who's been behind a lot of legislation to bring this up into uh, into the public's eye and to hold Monsanto accountable. And he's given me, you know, 50 or more research papers on glyphosate, and he describes how it uh, disrupts a, an enzyme pathway that I hadn't heard of called the, I think it's the Shekinate mm -hmm. pathway and uh, screws up our metabolism and all sorts of stuff. So I will be getting into that for everyone listening and we'll get right down into the nitty gritty. And, and, and the research that he sent me on glyphosate and how much of it is in commonly eaten foods is shocking. It's just mind boggling. Yep. And, and, and they've done some recent testing on pets and they find that, you know, that in your animals, it's even more because they go out, you know, your dogs go for a walk or they go outside to do their business yeah. and, and it gets absorbed yeah. through their paws. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, uh, the amount of it that they've used and, and the whole, again, the whole thing, it's supposed to be safe. You can't get harmed by it. And I've always said to people that say that to me, I said, have you ever seen farms using glyphosate, large farms? Yes. What do you notice about the people spraying it? They're in protective suits. So if it's safe, then why the hell do they got to wear protective suits to apply the damn exactly. stuff? Exactly. Exactly. Which is just common sense, right? But here we are back to not thinking, right? Just simply not thinking. Um, what do you feel the dangers of the projected HPV vaccine for infants are? Um, I don't. So thankfully, they, they're they really not pushing HPV in infants anymore. I mean, that's that's a vaccine that, oh. ever. I mean, that's a vaccine that's given to children starting at nine years of age, but primarily given between 12 and 14. HPV vaccines are Gardasil and Cervix. And Cervix isn't used, it's not approved for use in the U.S. anymore because of the demand was way down. And they don't even use it in Europe that much anymore, thank God, because the toxic ingredients in there are just horrible. But it's Gardasil. And now they've gone from Gardasil seven to Gardasil nine, you get through. And we talked about that earlier. We talked about the HPV vaccine causing in girls, primary ovarian failure and in boys causing infertility uh, because of the amount yeah. of aluminum in, that accumulates in the testicles. So yeah, it's bad. Right. It's bad people. I mean, I, I, you know, sometimes it gets really frustrating for me, Paul, because it's like, how many different ways can you say stop? How many yes, different yes. ways can you say Stop asking me which one is the safest one. Stop asking me yeah. which one is the worst one. And if you only could give yeah. one, which one would you give? It's like, stop playing Russian roulette with your children. Stop it. Just stop. Like, wake up. Yeah. Well, you, <laughs> you know, stop it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, that's the thing. You know, you, you almost have to feel sorry for people because they're programmed. I mean, lots of young men in the military, um, they really believe that they're protecting the country. They don't have enough life experience and knowledge. They trust the government. They trust doctors. They trust the police force, whatever. They don't have enough uh, consciousness yet to, to ask critical questions. 
And if, uh, I'm just glad people are asking you those questions. I mean, yes, they might be the wrong questions, but at least they're asking Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. So thank you. I just, I just yeah. was sharing my frustration because, you know, I've been doing this a long time. And you would think yes. that that by now, I don't know, that you would think by now that there would be more people who would who would not be doing this. But you still have like 10, two, you know, like eight out of 10 people saying things like, well, if we stop vaccinating, we'll have polio again, right? No, yeah. we won't have polio, <laughs> you know, or, or, and so what if we get a little uptick in measles or pertussis? So what, you know, look at all the lives and the brains that we're in and the trillions of dollars that we're saving. Yeah, I mean, if you're worried about diseases and stuff like that, you should be more worried about a third world war and the way the United States and other countries spend massive amounts of our money on weapons that can destroy the entire planet. I mean, there are bigger fish to fry than another outbreak of measles, for God's exactly. sake. Um, these are some questions from our midwife, who is a very good midwife. I took her name out because I didn't know she'd want this much exposure. She's and, and again, feel free to answer or not answer any of the questions you feel that you don't want to get into. Can you comment on representative representation of vaccine and how it affects the families and policies. So how are they being represented? Ask me that again. That's a little unclear. Yeah, it was hard because a lot of these were sent by text. So I had to kind of figure out how to make something out of it. Can you comment on representation of vaccines and how that affects families and policies? Representation of vaccines? I think how they're presented. Um, we can skip that one. Well, it, it's, you know, I mean, that it's, it's pretty obvious. I mean, the pro vaccines and circles, the government and the doctors are all vaccines are safe, effective, shut up and roll up your arm. You know, I mean, it yeah. just kind of comes down to that. You know, somebody said on my Facebook page years ago, and I've used this repeatedly, you know, if you took your baby, Paul, if you took your child or anybody took their child, and let's say just for the sake of discussion, you you wanted to vaccinate him, and you um, a, a four-postered him to your dining room table, two adults held his arms up over his head and pinned him to the table, and the other ones held his legs, while a third person injected, you know, polysorbate 80, formaldehyde, animal cells, cells from aborted fetal tissue, cells from cows and chickens, and um, the, uh, and all these viruses and bacteria until they scream and they screamed bloody murder because you were skewering them with these needles. How fast yeah. do you think it would be before CPS showed up at your door and arrested you for child abuse? But yet that's a, but well, that's a normal day that they, that's a, they call that a vaccination day in a pediatrician's office. Well, it only took them two days to have the social services show up because I resisted the vaccines in the hospital. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm making a I make it a different point, okay? I, I know, I, I'm just saying I'm saying when I'm concerned about the health of my child, I get in trouble, but if you torture children in public and call it medicine, nobody seems to pay attention. Yeah. Yeah, so if you but if you were doing those things and injecting those same things into your child in your house and somebody was pinning them to the table and you were jabbing them with needles, they would they would arrest you for child abuse. But, yes, but if absolutely. you do the exact same thing in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a building called an office with people standing around with white coats, it's just a normal vaccination it's, day. Yeah. Okay. Her next questions are, what are the percentages of those who die from exposure to a sickness who are already terminally sick 
and how that differs between vaccines and its representation. Um, I had a hard time clearly understanding that. What are the percentage of those who die from exposure to a sickness who are already terminally sick? I think what they're saying is, what she's saying is, of the people that are already dying from a sickness that are already terminal ill, how are they being used statistically to support vaccinations when it's really they were already going to die anyhow? Oh, well, hmm. The only thing that I that I could probably answer that question to was how back in the 1920s is how it, that's how they decided that thimerosal mercury that thimerosal that contains it's 50 55% mercury the the uh, molecule thimerosal how they determined that it was safe to be used in vaccines because they took people who were already dying of meningitis and they injected them with a vaccine that contained thimerosal and um and, and I forget how many of them actually died, uh, but they attributed the death to the meningitis and not to the thimerosal. So that's how they decided that thimerosal was okay to be put into vaccines. But I don't think that they go around to terminally ill people and give them vaccines to, as, as an experiment to test them. I, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Nuremberg Code kind of prevents that. And so if, if something like that is being done, it's certainly unofficial. Okay. Um, next question is the effects of Gardasil and how adverse side effects are reported. Well, we already talked about the effects of Gardasil a couple of times. Okay. And, right. and adverse events in the U.S. should be reported to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And anybody can file a VAERS report. It doesn't have to be a doctor. And you can just go to, I think it's, um, I think it's, it's uh, cdc.vaers.gov, I believe, is the, is the website, I believe. Okay. This one, um, you'll know more about than me. Does the shifting in the changes of ACOGs, standards of care for frequency for PAPs that start one after age 21 and two are now every three years change the reported rates and efficacy of Gardasil in reporting? No, it doesn't have anything to do with that. So what she's saying is that they, you know, they, they, we've now had, um, I know they've changed the recommendations from PAP tests once every year to every three years. And now in postmenopausal women, they say every five to 10 years, which is really stupid because that's the age mm-hmm. group most likely for after menopause for people to contract cervical or uterine cancer. And so, I mean, that's just like dumb, but that, no, that doesn't have yeah. anything to do with it. I mean, the, the whole CIN one, two, three classifications, the cer- which CIN stands for cervical intraepithelial neoplasia. Because it's called neoplasia, we think that that's a grading system for early cancers, and it's not. It's simply a grading system of inflammation of the cervix. I do an entire presentation on that. In fact, if anybody's going to um, uh, to the Anacapulco event in Acapulco, Mexico, which is the week of February the 17th, uh, the 14th to the 17th, it's the Anacapulco, it's Jeff Berwick's conference. I'm speaking there, and I'm going to be speaking on Gardasil. And it's going to be a really oh, fun good. time. They rented out this entire resort. They're expecting like 3,500 people to be there. And it's not going to be just about lectures and things. They have all kinds of really fun, super things to you know plan there. And, you know, Judge Napolitano is going to be there. Ron Paul is going to be there. It's a super libertarian event. So if you're not familiar with it, you can look it up on Vaxter. You can go to Vaxter and put in Acapulco, and it will take you to where I'm speaking. And you can use our link to like register, or you can just go to the – 
Anarchapoco website and um, and see all the different things that are going to be happening. There's going to be a lot of fun. Great. I think she's still referring to the some of the previous comments in this next one. Does this vaccine have a relationship to DES diestrobestrol? Are there worries of it affecting future generations in a similar way? Nope. doesn't have anything to do with DES. That's a completely different thing. And it's probably, you know, the main things that DES did was it caused a, bifurc a bifurcation of the uterus in a lot of, lot of girls. So when they were born, they had in, you know, like a uterus that was split down in the middle with a, with an extra piece of tissue, which decreased uh, the ability to have, <clears throat> to get, to have, to carry pregnancies. And it right. had other autoimmune types and, and cancer sort of things related to it. So we don't think that, that uh, Gardasil is going to be causing any, um, any things like that. But there are statistics out now in Europe at, that look at the vaccinated versus the much lesser vaccinated populations with Gardasil. And France never did buy into the Gardasil vaccine. They think less than 20% of girls in, Gardas in uh, France actually have had, uh, were vaccinated with Gardasil. And so they were able to do a study. This just got published in the European journals just within the last couple of weeks that show unequivocally that the girls who are vaccinated with Gardasil have a 20 to 30% increased risk of getting cervical cancer over an unvaccinated population. So Gardasil is actually causing cervical cancer, not preventing it. No surprise there, based on what we've talked about. Here's a nice clean one for you. What happens when heavy metals cross the blood-brain barrier? Um, it causes things like um, autism, causes things like Alzheimer's, dementia, um, any other of a long list of neurological problems. Yeah. And uh, having had to clean that stuff out of my brain, as I described earlier, uh, it's not pretty. Um are there or do you offer programs for detoxification of neurotoxins associated with vaccinations? I don't, but they just did a summit on uh, vaccine detoxification. Um, Health Talks Online just promoted, I think it was just over like maybe maybe a couple of months ago, that there are people who've done things and they look at cleaning up your diet, cleaning up your microbiome, cleaning up your gut, um, um, and various other things. I didn't, I, I admit I didn't participate in the summit. I was, I was just too busy to do, to participate. And I, I really didn't even listen to it because I was just too busy. But if you go to health talks online and you can look for, I believe it was the detox summit, or it may have even been called the vaccine detox summit. You can find people who are actually doing those things. We do not offer that in our office. Okay. Now, I know the answer to this next one is just a simple three-letter word. I'll state the question for completeness, and you can just say yes. It seems like we have a decline in infectious diseases, yet we have an astonishing amount of chronic illnesses and autoimmune diseases. Are these vaccinations and medical procedures destroying our immune system? Go ahead and say it. Unequivocally, yes. <laughs> unequivocally. Yes. And we haven't had a decline of diseases. We've got to change that word. We've had a, decre a decline in the number of infections. Okay, great. 
many vaccinations seem to be outdated. Why are they still being administered? Because if they um, if they had to re-go through uh, developing a new vaccine and have to go through all the testing and clinical trials again, it would uh, cost them billions of dollars. And they might not get approved the next time around. So once they're approved, they're right. always approved and they continue using them. Because in the U.S., because of the 1986 National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, not Compensation Act, the, the pharmaceutical industry has 100% liability protection for their faulty products. So even if the vaccine is injected into you and you die or become seriously ill, they have no liability, which means they have no incentive whatsoever to make a safer product. They have no incentive to even keep the products they make clean because they can't be sued. And, you know, Bobby Kennedy and Dell Bigtree you know, sued uh, the U.S. government and won in the Southern, I think it was the Southern District Court of New York, <laughs> that, <clears throat> excuse me, when the Vaccine Injury Compensation Act was passed in 1986, there was a provision in there that every two years, uh, representatives from the pharmaceutical industry were supposed to submit to Congress a report of what they were doing to try to make vaccines cleaner and safer. It has never once been done in 33 years. So there is a, so yeah. Bobby Kennedy is, is putting together a very big lawsuit that's going to be coming down the pike. Um, so to, um, to sue the people who were responsible for that. Because if you're no longer working for the government, you're not under the government protection anymore. And they have liability because of all the people that they have harmed and put at risk. The fact that they can get protected so that you can't sue them tells you that there's a very serious problem in government right off the bat. I mean, that's just, that alone should just be a massive siren that says, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Here's a short but important question. Why are boys more affected than girls? It has to do with, they, they really, for, for two reasons, really. <clears throat> One is that a, a lot of the protective things that happen are, or a lot of the things that happen um, in vaccine damage happen to the X chromosome. And girls have a backup plan there. They've got two X's and boys only have one. Boys have an X and a Y. Okay. That's the one thing. The other thing is they really believe that the estrogen and that, the, you know, boys and girls both make estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. They just make them in different ratios. And the yeah. girls have a much higher estrogen rate, uh, uh, estrogen levels, even little girls than, than little boys, even before puberty. And they believe that that, that higher estrogen is, is protective to the brain and protective to the nervous system. Well, there you go, guys. We've got to be a little more like the girls once in a while if it's good for our own health. <laughs> um, what populations are more at risk? Hispanic, American, uh, I don't know what, uh, there's a, some slang there, but uh, are there populations that are more at risk? No. With vaccination, <laughs> not that we've okay. been able to see, because there are vac vaccine death and carnage, vaccine injury, death and vaccine carnage all over the world. I mean, in India, Indonesia, Bogota, Colombia, Japan, um, Asia. I mean, people have been marching in the streets in Asia for weeks now over the faulty vaccines given to the Chinese kids. And so, I don't think I believe that when you are injecting toxic foreign matter into a baby it matters not what your ethnicity is right um here's our last question uh what do you think the future holds for vaccinations now that glaxosmithkline the leading pharmaceutical company 
is going to have access to DNA samples from 23andMe. Will vaccinations improve, meaning if you have certain DNA variables that you will automatically be uh, be exempt, or will big pharma companies come up with more ways to vaccinate the public with this information? Oh, they're going to come up with more thing, more things. Hold on one second, Paul. I'm going to grab something. Hold on a second. Okay, sure. I wanted to grab this book that was on my shelf because I wanted to see what year this was published. Okay, so this book, the title of this book, because that's a really good question about the about the genetic things. People are not going to be exempt ever. So, you know, if, ever, uh, ever, ever, ever. I mean, look at all the people that we know that have MTHFR issues or have COMP-T issues. They're not exempt. And we, even though we know that they're much more susceptible because they can't methylate, if they can't methylate, they can't detox. So this is a book that was sitting on my shelf. And the title of the book, it's like a tech, it's like a small textbook, is Genetic Immunization is the name of the book. And so it's about vaccines to manipulate your DNA and to uh, to manipulate your genes. And I wanted to see when this was published. It was published in, um, was published in 2000, 18 years ago, they were talking about genetic manipulation using vaccines. That's wild. Well, Sherry, it's been an amazing interview. You've certainly woke me up. You know, I, I follow as much of your information as I can. And, you know, I, instead of trying to read mountains of literature, uh, Angie has read several books. I mean, she's into this stuff and uh, she's very excited for this interview to come out. Um, that's why I went directly to you as a consultant for what to do. And, and thank you. Cause Mana is just as healthy and strong as they get. Um, what resources do you recommend or want to share here uh, right now? And uh, anything that you want to offer right now, please share. And uh, I've already recommended uh, Vaxter, www.vaxxter.com. Um, could you go ahead and share how people can reach you and what, what it is that you'd like to offer? Yeah, um, we do. We I started a, a new company in March of 2017. And the company's name is Courses for Mastery. So Courses for Mastery. And inside of Courses for Mastery, there are four different offerings that we, we have. One is our boot camp course. It's the Mastering Vaccine Info boot camp, eight-week intensive boot camp training course. And we offer that twice a year. Um, people can go to, right right now we're getting ready for enrollment. I know we're, um, it's only open twice a year to um, to train people on the meaning, the real meaning of safe and effective, to drill down on the real history about smallpox and polio, to, to really go through in detail about herd immunity. And then we train people about package inserts because if you're not a medical person and people say, well, at least you should read the package insert and you open the package insert and you go, what the heck is this? How do I interpret it? So we train people on the package insert and then we walk through the schedules and then we have a, an extra module about aluminum and mercury and and, and in between there, my business partner in this venture, his name is Matt, and Matt is a language and behavioral expert. 
And so not only are we training people on the very, what I consider to be core content of vaccination, that people who are in this need to have this information nailed down that they can deliver in bite-sized pieces to everybody that they meet. Because the theme of our bootcamp course is sowing seeds. You just continually sow seeds. And Matt actually trains people how to share things without length, without getting hot, with having confidence and to be able to do it in a really in the right way. In fact, the tagline tagline on our bootcamp course is building competent confident parents, intelligent leaders, and articulate activists. And so our bootcamp course, the open enrollment will be uh, February 21st to February 26th. Um, it's $595. Um, you'll have access to the material for a year. You have access to us for a year. Um, and then there's a small fee after that if you want to maintain go, maintain going forward. But uh, you'll have access to it for a year. You'll have, there's recordings every Thursday night. We have an open class discussion online using Zoom for all the class participants on Thursday nights. Those are recorded. So if you can't join us live. You can watch it in the recording. So the bootcamp course open enrollment is February 21st to the 26th. If you want to be on our notification list, go to masteringvaccineinfo.com and put your, um, put your uh, email into the list and that will put you right into our, into our uh, marketing folder there. And then if you do, um, and then if you go to, um, or you can just, or you can just, that's the best, best way to do it. And then we will have the second, um, Open, we will have the boot camp course the second time. We'll open enrollment will be the end of September and the course will be October and November. So this year, the course is open enrollments the end of February. The course is March and April. And then we have a second boot camp course that open enrollment is in September and then the course is in October and November. And then after you go through the boot camp course, we'll invite you to join our membership, which is called Page Two. It's like a, like the old Paul Harvey stuff. You know, page two, the rest of the story. You know, remember that, Paul, when we were yeah, kids uh -huh. growing up? Yeah, and so this, yeah, rest the rest of the, of the story. So this is a continuation of the training. We will also be opening up Vaccine University uh, soon, um, probably within the next few weeks, which are advanced modules, advanced training on drill down on the individual specific vaccines. In each course, uh, there's a course that's called the Combo 10, which is all 10 of the pediatric vaccines. And then each one of the individual modules, like there's a module on on measles, a module on pertussis, a module on rubella. So all of those will be available inside of Vaccine U, which will open soon. And then we have remodeled, rebuilt, and rebranded the Vaccine Research Library, which will be coming out with a new name called Debunking Vaccination. And that's going to be free content. It has over 12,000 articles in there of problems associated with vaccines. You just have to register. It's just, it's free content. Just register with a, with an email list. And hopefully in July, we'll be talking about developing some premium content that has to do with some vaccine podcasting, but that's not until the middle of the year. So we hope everybody will join us because we need to build an army. We need to train people. It's just like Paul trained all of you guys, all of his trainers, because he couldn't do it all by himself anymore. He needed to multiply himself. So part of what our, the yeah. importance of our boot camp is we want to get people talking the same language, moving in the same direction. And, and last time when we had the, the last uh, our course that we did in the fall, we had people from 31 states and, um, and 11 foreign countries. 
And so, um, I mean, people, there was, a, there were people from the UAE and from the Netherlands and Sweden and Australia, New Zealand, Canada, all over the place. And so it's, it's a really good place to be, to get on the same page because everybody is a really, and we had people in there that were brand new to the topic all the way up to vaccine researchers that have been doing this for like 20 years. And even those people right. said, gosh, I learned so much and I learned how to deliver it the right way. And I learned how to chop it into bite-sized pieces to continually sow these seeds. And so it's for everybody. It's for people that are brand new to the topic, people that have been doing it for a long time. It's from healthcare practitioners to, you know, the stay-at-home mom. We use the language and we do it. So it applies to everybody. We just need to get a whole group of people moving in the same direction. Well, that's why I'm sharing you with the world right now. And this podcast goes out to a lot more people than just check trained professionals. So, uh, and I'm going to be talking to many of my friends that have very big podcasts and encouraging them to not only listen to this, but to consider having you as a guest on their show. If you're oh, yes, that. please do. I would love to do that. I'm, I'm hoping that it's not three hours. <laughs> No, well, uh, you know, I wanted to, to to do a thorough job of this, and I'm uh, I was grateful that you uh, committed to this, and I'm sure it'll pay off. I mean, off. I, I couldn't do twenty um, of these at three hours, is what I'm saying. I'm just I'm just poking at you a little bit, Paul, because you're my friend. I'm just poking at you. That's cool. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I was surprised when Penny said you were up for it, and I'm like, oh well, great, we'll go for it. Um, now, if I'm understanding you correctly, this is all online. Nobody has to get on an airplane or travel. So this should be quite flexible this eight week. Yep, weekend. it's all online. The, the, you watch, you log into the portal to, to watch the courses. They are a Prezi format with a, with a, that has been recorded in an MP4 that you log in, you watch them there. We don't allow people to download them because people steal things and this is our business yeah. and they're not going to go up on uh, YouTube tomorrow, right? And so, right, yeah, I know so you the know deal. the deal. So they log in, they can watch it there. Uh, the first week you get, uh, the first lesson comes on Monday and then all subsequent lessons are available on Saturdays. And we did that at the request of our students because the students say, you know, if you could release the course, open up the course on Saturday, you know, I have more time over the weekend. That gives me almost a full week until the Thursday night discussion groups. And everybody is that's in the course is invited on Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern time. And it's about 75 to 90 minutes and so we discuss that week's lessons and anything else that people want to talk about you know about vaccine stuff and, and, and about language things we also talk about internet security because if you're going to be talking about this on facebook and various different places how to protect yourself how to protect your identity um we talk about um it's just all kinds of things i mean we've we've got a lot of students that you know we've only we did a beta launch and then we did our our first real launch which was fall last year so this is our second real launch and, and i think that um this 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 time around, I think we're going to have lots of people. We're going to have hundreds and hundreds of people that are going to enroll because everybody's got the buzz about what it was the last time, and they were really happy, really happy with the course. Well, I'm excited to be able to support you in this, and and I'm I'm also very grateful for all the work you're doing. And I can honestly say I have deep love and respect for you as a human being. And I'm uh, very thankful that you spent this time with me and everybody listening, Sherry. So. I'll I'll let you go relax now. You've given us a lot of your time and energy, and um, 
I really appreciate it. Oh, my it. pleasure, Paul. It's good to connect with you. Again, it's like I said at the very top of the show, it's nice to have a really long-time friend. And, you know, we've been friends for a really long time. And I really appreciate your support of this space. I mean, it touches you personally now with your new little ones there. And so, um, yeah. you know, any other venues that we can do to get this information out, to help people to make these decisions, um, I'm really, really have, it's my privilege to be able to share it with people. Yeah, I'll I'll make some con- connections for you. I have uh, friends, people that I've done podcasts with myself that have uh, followers in the millions. Awesome. Thank you so much. And um, I'm hoping that we'll, right. our paths will cross one of these days again real soon. Thank you so much for the yeah. opportunity. Thank you for letting me be here. And, and my love to you and, and Penny and, and um, um, Angie and your new family. Thank you very much. Have a great rest uh-huh. of your day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. Dr. Tenpenny will be opening up enrollment in her eight-week Mastering Vaccine Info online bootcamp on February the 21st, and she has allowed Paul's podcast listeners to register their interest ahead of time. To be one of the first to be notified when you can register for the bootcamp, go to masteringvaccineinfo.com forward slash check where you will find your special notification form. Dr. Tenpenny will only be offering this course twice in 2019 and her classes fill up fast so I encourage you to head to masteringvaccineinfo.com forward slash check and fill out the form. You can find Dr. Tenpenny on Facebook facebook.com forward slash vaccine info And she has a free vaccine and alternative health newsletter that you can sign up for at vaxter.com. That's V-A-X-X-T-E-R dot com. If you are interested in a phone consultation, you can call her office in Ohio on 440-239-3438. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living 4d with paul check you can watch more on paul's blog at www.paulchecksblog.com and the check institute blog at www.checkinstitute.com forward slash blog